All right. So nothing has been easier than dunking on some of the comments that you see from Gen Z on social media, from everything from complaining about the hours they have to work to the wages that they get to tuition costs. It, it really has. Some, some of the reactions that have come up have been really easy to make fun of. I know I've done it, but, and I'm going to show you a couple where I've done it, but I had somebody came out and they said, you know what, Nick, I, I get it. I get it. You brought up a good point. They were being a little bit ridiculous. However, don't you think this might be an opportunity to explain to somebody why something is operating the way it is and maybe offer them a different perspective rather than the one that they've gotten from like AOC and Elizabeth Warren constantly? And you know what? Yeah, they're right. They're right. It's, it's, it's easy to dunk. But unfortunately, a lot of times when you make the whole message dunking on someone saying something stupid, you actually drive them further and further in the opposite direction of really where they need to go. And so this whole episode is going to be dedicated toward really two things. The first one is asking the question, regardless of how it might appear on social media, does Gen C have a point about a lot of the things that they're complaining about? And two, if they do have a point, which spoiler alert, I kind of think on some of these things they actually do the more you dive into the data. The real question is, is that, okay, if they're mad, who should they be mad at? And that is the question that we're going to answer here. And this one is critical, especially as we go into the holidays. There's going to be a lot of kids coming back from college. There's going to be a lot of time back at home. You're going to have more time with your kids than you had for a while. So this is a great episode to watch if you want to be able to hopefully effectively address some of the questions, some of the complaints, some of the concerns that are coming from Gen Z. We will discuss all that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, brought to you by Good Ranchers. Welcome to this episode. Thank you to everyone who has given us all all the ideas in our circle chat. We appreciate everyone who's joined. We're about to, you know, not too far from hitting a thousand members, so that's pretty awesome. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description, sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. Okay, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas. Member of the Virginia House of Delegates, at least for now. We'll see what happens. He needs to stop saying that. Stop saying that. We'll see what happens. You never know. You never know. See, that's that's what happens. People get arrogant in their position, and they just assume they're going to be there forever, but maybe not. You could lose. You could lose to Sarah Radcliffe. Ah. Anyways, anyways, a couple of days. <laughs> with, a, with us, not as always, but I'm, I'm glad back, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. Then we have our political prognosticator, resident historian, and mostly benevolent warlord, Christian Hines. How are you doing, Christian? And possessor of a master's degree. And possessors of, of a master's I, degree. I announced it on in our circle chat this weekend, actually. I just got my grade back from my dissertation. What'd you get? I, I, I got an A-plus on it. Oh, so, dang. So, so, so the way that the grading scale... So how woke skill, was so it? So you're Master Hines now? <laughs> yeah. He's Master so, Hines now. So the now. way that the grading skill works, it's it's weird. I, I the, the story is that I, I applied to a UK school, but they have this thing called COVID. You might have heard of it. Never heard of it. Yeah, so I couldn't Sounds go over like there. a myth. Um, so I, I took the entire course online, um, even though I kind of wanted to go over there. But... Um, the way that the grading skill works in the UK is that it's on a scale of one of zero to 100, just like the US, but yeah. they grade way harsher. So, for example, like a 70 is still the equivalent of like an A minus, whereas in the US, that'd be like a C minus because nobody ever gets 100. They just don't hand out hundreds. They don't hand out 90s. I've heard before that like they don't even hand out anything over 80. So what'd you get? I got an 85. Wow. And I've talked to multiple people that have like attended school in the UK and they're like, yeah, those those don't really happen. Wow. Well often. done. So that was well kind of cool. done. And that, that was all about the Austrian Navy was your, dissertation? yeah, it was a really, really niche topic, which is usually what they encourage. Yeah. So. Yeah. So all about how Austrian Navy battleships identify as something else. Okay. <laughs> then we, of course, now that we've finally gotten around to it, 
Our producer of producers, Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't yes, like sir. central banking. I don't have a camera today, but it's a pleasure to be here, and I am here. All right. Just take our word for it. Hamilton's here. He's fine. Don't worry that he's not on camera. It has not. <laughs> All right. AI has taken over so, his place. Yeah, yeah, really. I am Hamilton, the good Hamilton. All right. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go, we're gonna actually give some. We're gonna give the audience some examples of what I was talking about. And some of these, you know, fairly reasonable. Others, not so much. And then I'm gonna give two examples of ones that I actually responded to on my Instagram page. And again, I'm just gonna say I'm sorry right now. They were. They were dunking videos. They absolutely were. All right, so let's watch this uh, first one um, that came out there. Someone talking about inflation. The cost of living in 2023 is so bad that I'm pretty sure I actually was better off financially when I was making minimum wage in 2012 versus me making almost $100,000 today. In 2012, I lived with my roommate in a two-bedroom apartment, and our rent was $700. So we paid $350 each. I paid maybe $100, $150 a month for groceries. Our utilities were maybe $100 a month for everything. And my take-home pay, making minimum wage, was probably, I don't know, $1,300, $1,400 a month. After all of my expenses and necessities, I had so much money left over. I mean, not like a lot of money, but like several hundred dollars left over. I was able to go out to eat multiple times per week. I mean, nothing fancy, but like I was still able to go out. I was able to like go shopping. I really liked buying makeup and clothes and I was able to do that. Now in 2023, I pay $3,300 a month for rent um, in British Columbia, um, obviously split in two. So I pay 1650 of that. Utilities are at least two or $300 a month. I have a student loan payment, several hundred dollars a month. I had to move outside the city. So now I have to have a car. I have the like, gas prices are ridiculous. Car insurance in British Columbia. It adds up. And obviously I am making a decent salary. I can afford it. But I really feel like I had a lot more disposable income in 2012 when I was making Pause. Yeah, and especially I'll tell you right now, as bad as the housing market is in the United States, Canada is just insane right now. If you're living anywhere near an urban area in Canada, holy crap it's just it's just nuts they're they're um experimenting with something called return to feudalism <laughs> all right let's okay this next one uh this actually got showed up on libs of tiktok this one i think everybody took a chance to just slam uh, on the internet but this is a recent college grad has a breakdown over working a job here we go i know i'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying but this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college. And I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me fucking forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table. Like fucking duh. If Ooh, I was able oh. to walk to work. I forgot okay. about the language about that. on that wow. one. All right, we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll go ahead and stop on that one. Wow, I should apologies we, Should we that. pause to talk about the potty mouth of yeah, Gen I, Z? Yeah, I, I haven't actually seen that. She, I mean, she goes she goes on to basically claim that like, how can you possibly have a life working your nine to five job and how miserable it is and 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 whatnot? But um, yeah, doing. I didn't realize how many cuss words were in there. In retrospect, wow. it's libs of TikTok. We probably I take the blame for that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go to this next one. This was uh, we we don't know who this is. Yeah this this was this is from my page. Every once in a while, I'll find one of these. And I'll, I'll just think that I, I desperately need to talk about it. By the way, there's another one I sent you, Hamilton. Okay. We'll pull up. Go ahead and uh, play this one. So I got fired. No cause, just vibes. Uh, it sounds like technically the vibes were the cause. 
jobs. And when I was like, why? Why is this happening? I'm like, it seems like you really don't like your job. Did you like your job? And I was like, yeah, of course I don't like my job. Gosh, I wonder if that affected your work performance. <laughs> since when are we, sorry, since when are we supposed to like our jobs? I thought, I thought you just bootstraps it and just muscle through the day like my Republican dad told me. Yeah, bootstrapping this means that you actually show up and do your job well and usually in a way that you don't indicate to your employers, coworkers, and potentially customers that you hate your job. God, corporate America is just getting out of control. I don't know why, but I'm willing to bet that this young woman gets very upset when she gets poor customer service from somebody who obviously hates their job. <laughs> Pause. All right, I think we... Did you find the other one I sent you? Uh, yeah, give me just 30, okay. 30 seconds to bring it up. I love how she brings up her Republican dad. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like... That makes it easier for me to, to say like, oh, okay, we're, we're, we're going to play we're gonna play games. All right, let's play games. You want to play stupid games, you will win stupid prizes. <laughs> but... <sighs> Like on some of these, especially the first one you saw, somebody explaining like, gosh, I think I had more disposable income, you know, at this stage of my life than I did at this one. That's perfectly legitimate. That's perfectly That's fair. That's some good analysis is all that yeah, is. Yeah, this is another one that I couldn't help when I saw this. And I had a lot of people get mad at me for making fun of this. But um, yeah, let's go ahead and play this one as well. I just, I couldn't help myself on this. I just really couldn't. See this yet? So I'm applying to go somewhere and I just wanted to know, are there accommodations for people who struggle with time blindness and being on time? Time blindness, you say. Let me let me just look here real quick. Oh, yep. It's covered right here under imaginary things that don't exist. And then the person I was with interrupted and acted like I was asking something else. Hmm, yeah, that was them covering for you. And if you struggle with being on time, you'll never be able to get a job. Oh, that's not true at all. You can definitely get a job. Keeping it, that, that, will, that will probably be the trick. I think that a culture where workers are just cut off because they struggle with being on time when there's other solutions that we can look to. She's right, you know, there are other solutions. For instance, the solution to time blindness where I work was paycheck forgetfulness. That's <laughs> right, when you didn't show up, they, they just didn't pay you. Yeah, that culture needs to be dismantled. Oh, come on, your side. Let's dismantle this entire culture. Let's tear it down. When should we start? Oh, it was yesterday, six, we missed it. Time blindness, man. <laughs> So I, I actually got a lot of, I got into some trouble on that one from everybody that, you know, has ADD, ADHD, because they were talking about like, well, time blindness is a thing, but it's your responsibility to actually do something about it. It's not yeah. your employer's responsibility. Like all of us, all of us who actually have ADHD, we're looking at it going, okay, you, okay, you have, you struggle with managing your time. Yeah, that's a symptom, but this is your problem, yeah. not everybody else's. And you know how we fix this problem? We set alarms. <laughs> we set alarms for everything. Yeah. And we create a schedule that tells us what to do next so that we won't get so tied up in what we're doing that we lose track of time. So here's here's what Christian I, had time blindness uh, this what morning. What do you mean? <laughs> I always do. Hamilton was joking the other day. He's like, Christian, you don't even like get out of bed until two p.m. Actually, I think he said three p.m. I might be being a bit too generous towards him. You he's, walked in way, like thirty-five minutes right. late. Yeah. He walks in. He's like. I'm late. He drops his two Dr. Peppers defense, down. <laughs> oh yeah, I've got him sitting over here. In my defense, in my defense, I am a night owl. I I will be up here. I, I like like so we have this this thing called the Y minutes that Nick and I work on, and that Nick records. Um, by the way, go check them out. Um, they're actually pretty good videos. We've we've mentioned them many times when they relate to stuff about this podcast. But um, keep going. I your was excuse. up here. Keep keep giving. I was excuse. up here writing a Y minute at like midnight. <laughs> 
just a few nights ago. Nick and I on Friday went to the gym at 1 a.m. Yeah. together. Um, by the way, that's something that I'm still doing. I just went yesterday, even though these two guys, actually Nick went earlier because I have time blindness and Hamilton over here didn't even bother to go. I went this morning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so anyway, my, my point is, is that yes. Okay. As much as I would love to dunk on this woman, because this is a stupid phrase that shouldn't even exist. I've thought about it and and you know what? I actually do probably have time blindness because I'm not a, a, a morning person, but here's what I don't do. I don't go out there and, and, and demand that people cater to me. I just make them cater to me. (laughs) (laughs) He just asserts his dominance by walking in 35 minutes late. (laughs) Well, here, look, so, so let's go over some of this, right? So you've got the, the first one where, you know, she was talking about like, oh my gosh, it seems like with inflation, it's, I feel like I'm making a lot more money, but I feel like I have less based off of kind of the conditions that she's in, the purchasing power and stuff like that. And some of that you could look at too, and you could chalk up to, okay, well, you made certain decisions with respect, probably like the place you're living in right now was probably nicer on some degree than the apartment that you had before, right? You didn't have a car before you have a car now, right? So all of these things are various expenses that are based at least in part on choices, um, you, you have the, the woman getting very frustrated about having to work a nine to five job and with commuting and everything else, how do you have time for the rest of your life and everything? And, and then you, you saw the ones that I responded to the whole idea of, you know, well, of course I hate my job. All, all of these we could look at and we could say, okay, well, why don't we take a closer look at what sort of choices you made? So you're, you're, you're making more money right now, but you also mentioned that you have several hundred dollars of debt with respect to college Loves. Now, maybe maybe your degree was absolutely necessary for the job that you have, or maybe it wasn't. I don't know, right? She didn't go into the specifics on that. But the, the big thing that I think a lot of people from Gen X usually talk about whenever we're talking to Zoomers or millennials is, you know, okay, well, it's life, right? And there, there's certain things that you have to contend with and that you have to adjust for and certain sacrifices that you're going to have to make if you want certain things. And that's, that's usually the big problem, right? The big disconnect is a lot of time with Gen X and sometimes with, with boomers as well. It's this whole idea of, well, okay, well, every era had its struggles that they went through. Like, um, if you look at the boomers, you obviously you had a lot of social upheaval that was going up. You had some good things that happened, some bad things that happened. You had the Vietnam war, uh, was very prominent, obviously. Um, and, and keep in mind, there was more casualties in the Vietnam War than Iraq and Afghanistan combined times, I think, four. Um, Iraq and Afghanistan was like six to 7,000, and Vietnam was like 52. 50, 52. It, I thought it was like 57 or something. I, I thought it, maybe you're it right. It was in the 50,000 yeah, range. Yeah, it, it was in the 50,000 range. So, you know. And, and with a much smaller population, right? So, so keep in mind, like, and that's the part where it becomes easy to look at the struggles that you had within your lifetime and then look at things like today. And a lot of the argument that comes back is, well, look at all the, I mean, you have endless amounts of like technological luxuries that we couldn't even dream about 30 years ago. Um, and so a lot of the times we look at some of those technological conveniences. We look at some other things with respect to, you know, comparing and contrasting, um, on various, again, security, luxuries, et cetera. And we're like, what are you complaining about? Here's, here's what I, here's where I want to give Gen Z their due, right? This is where I I want us to be intellectually honest about what we're talking about. Because if this, if this becomes nothing more than a conversation of Gen X and boomers looking at millennials and Gen Z going, well, have you considered not being a little pansy about everything, right? That's going to be problematic. That's going to be a problematic discussion. If, if, there's actually legitimate critiques that are taking place. One of the reasons why this is so problematic 
it, it really gets under my skin when people do the generational, well, this generation yeah. is just terrible. And I remember I'm Gen X. Uh, we're Nick and I are the very end of Gen X. Nick is almost in that crossover to millennial. I am, I am still Gen X because I'm nine months older than Nick. But anyway, I remember even when I was young, people talking about kids these days and how their generation sucks and this and that and the other thing. Like you've always got, you know, boomers were always bashing on Gen X and and millennials because boomers had, you know, Gen X and millennials. Um, and, and, and then you've got Gen X bashing on Zoomers now. And it just kind of, they just keep on bashing each other going down. But I don't understand why nobody's paying attention to the fact that they are a product of someone else's creation. And so if you're going to bash your kids, maybe you should look in the mirror. That's all I have to say about that. All righty. So um, let's go through and let's go through and look some of the issues. All right. So this first chart that we have up here has to do with um, home price growth over 50 years. And if you're looking at this, regardless of the age, here's what you're going to notice, right? There's been other times where it's been pretty bad with respect to, to house, um, home prices. And, and this is a, a adjusted for like nominal versus real, et cetera. Um, but one of the big things that you end up seeing here is that things got a little bit dicey there in the mid 2000s. Um, you also see in the, in the late uh, 70s, um, house prices were incredibly high. You also had interest rate issues in the, in the early, or excuse me, in the late seventies interest rates were, gosh, they were, I mean, they were early eighties, especially the Volcker era. Yeah. They, they were up around, like they were pushing 20% at, at various points. And part of that was to take the inflation out of the economy that had been taking place in the seventies when we went off the gold standard. So, so why do I now, now you're also going to see that, um, Right now, once again, Gen Z millennials are finding themselves at a time where housing prices are incredibly high. There's a chart that I saw. We don't have it, but there was a chart that I saw recently that showed that, um, you know, adjusted for things like inflation and stuff like that, home prices today are worse in terms of unaffordability than at the peak of the housing bubble in late 2006, early 2007, yeah. which is incredible if you think about it. Well, and that's when that's when interest rates were artificially low. So the housing prices were high, interest rates were artificially no, low. Now you have a situation where housing prices are higher, but the interest rates are higher. And that makes a huge impact. So why do I bring this up? Well, first of all, nobody at this table was at an age where we were buying houses in the late seventies, early eighties. All right. So there, there's a, there's a generational, there's, there's a generation here where if you looked at this with the exception of the early two thousands, right? Early to mid two thousands, when again, keep in mind, housing prices were high, but interest rates were low, right? You also have this big government push to get everybody into a house. They want everyone to be homeowners. There were a lot of shenanigans going oh on. Oh my, with subprime mortgages. Loans. There were interest only loans that yeah. locked people in. And then once the interest rate skyrocketed, they could no longer afford the mortgage. I mean, they were really putting people into homes to make them, you know, house rich and cash poor. And that's kind of what you've got going on with the Zoomers now is the fact that, um, you know, they're in a cool place or whatever, but no one has taught them not to expend all of their income on the place they live or the car they drive or 
the education they're getting, they need to try to balance it out a little bit. Well, I feel and, like and that's with millennials, though. I don't think Zoomers have necessarily had a chance to enter that. Like they're they're just getting they're just entering into it. But but here's the here's the point that I want to make because we called this about why is Gen Z mad, but it could have just as easily been you know Gen Z and millennials. The the point that I want to make here is right now, like we're going to get into kind of explaining a lot of this um, with respect to okay, Gen Z, you got a point, but. You might be you might be going after the wrong target, but I just want to point out here that they have a point, right? If you're a millennial, if you're Gen Z, if you're like late millennial, early or excuse me, um, um, yeah, late millennial. If you're me or or Gen Z, <laughs> right? Like I, I get it. This this stinks, right? This is not this is not a happy place. Next next uh, graph. Okay, this shows um, U.S. inflation rates from 1914 to 2022. So once again, what you're going to see here, this is from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's been worse, right? Inflation has been worse, but it's the worst it's been in 50 years. It's the worst it's been in 50 years. So once again, what you've what you've had is generations of people growing up at a time where the interest rates weren't so bad. You were you were able to uh, accomplish certain things, and now all of a sudden they've um, excuse me, not interest rates, inflation rates. Inflation rates have have once again spiked. Um, and so, comparatively speaking, if you were if you were at a point where you were established, you were getting your job, maybe getting married, maybe buying a house. You're at the worst point you could be with respect to inflation in the last 50 years. So once again, when when the the lady that was speaking in that first thing saying like, gosh, with inflation, I feel like I'm worse off now than I was 10 years ago. There's a reason for that, right? That she's not imagining this. It's true. It's there, real. There's a reason for this. Yeah. Um, next one. Okay, this is the rising cost of college in the United States. Now, what's interesting about this graph is it actually shows two things. One is overall inflation from 1980 to 2020. That's the CPI inflation. But the other is college tuition inflation. And here's what you're seeing in this is that adjusted for inflation, right, from about really from the the 1990s on, but you really see just a a massive increase in the 2000s. the inflation, or the, I don't even like to call it inflation as much as like, let's just call the rising cost of tuition uh, in colleges and universities is up exponentially. In fact, the cost of obtaining a college education in the United States have ballooned relative to overall inflation. Average college tuition and fees have increased by 1200% since 1980, while inflation is up 236%. So once again, everybody frustrated about the rising costs and tuitions. Now, again, a lot of the solutions they're offering is, well, this is why the government should pay for it. We're going to explain why that is problematic. But again, if you've been told your entire life, you got to get a college degree, that's the path to success. That's how you're going to, that's how you're going to get a good job. That's how you're going to get, you know, a nice place to live or anything else. Then there's obviously this drive that, oh, I've got to go to college. That's how I'm successful. It seems like it's kind of goes both ways. So as college costs and fees go up, the value of the college, the college degree or the high, you know, whatever it is they're getting a degree in is going down. In fact, they're, they're offering so many junk degrees that just, they have no value outside well, of just saying I have we're a gonna, degree. Again, That's we're, a repeating pattern, by the way, Nick, because how many times have, have we watched things like the whatever podcast and people bring that up when it comes to the dating market, having to put in more effort for for people that are quite frankly worth less than well, my, let's, my, my, you guys, I, guys the are jumping that, ahead. You're I know the, ahead. the reason I bring that up is, is though is because Tina brings up a point that I I didn't necessarily 
like, like, like she, she just brought up something that, that I kind of have thought about before, but have never actually pieced it together the way that she brought it up. And I, I think I, I, I want to just hone in on that for a second, because I think there's a lot of value there that, that you're seeing an inflated price, but a degradation in terms of quality. Yeah. Diminished product basically. And, and then I, I, while she was saying that, I was just thinking to myself, where else have we seen that? We see that in many, many places. And I just use the dating market as an example, but like there's so many other outlets where it's like higher prices, but the quality is worse than it was for like even my products. parents or grandparents. You, you even products the, right now, you can see it in clothing right now. You can see that you're paying more for clothing and the quality of the clothing is lower. The quality of the fabrics they're using and the textiles and things like that is lower because that's a form of inflation. They're cutting costs too on their end while the costs are rising for you as well. And they're having to sell it for more. And I, I don't chalk it up to greed. I chalk it up to the government totally inflating the dollar. I agree. Let's not get too far ahead. <laughs> right now, we're just talking about do they have a do they have a point? All right, next next uh, slide, or next yeah slide. Um, okay, this one kind of going to, to Christian's point right now because Morgan Stanley did a study. Uh, scroll up real quick. I'm sorry, Hamilton, this is my fault. Scroll up real quick. Um, the study said. Study predicts 45% of women will be single by 2030. So almost half the female population is going to be single. Now, obviously for, you know, people that are too young to be, you know, married or in a serious relationship, that makes sense. Maybe for, for people that are old and have lost a spouse or whatnot, that makes sense. But <clears throat> go ahead and uh, scroll down. Okay, so there's a few reasons for this prediction. One, women aren't getting married young anymore. We have so many other options for what to do with our lives that getting married is no longer the default option. We're focusing on our careers, going to grad school, traveling, our friends and extended social circles, and, and taking our time to find the right guy. Two, we aren't having babies like we used to with more options for birth control than ever before um, and somewhat reliable treatments for infertility. The pressure to have kids with any certain time frame just isn't there anymore. And with that pressure gone, so is the urgency to get married for the sake of starting a family. So many women are single that is unmarried and will remain this way for this foreseeable future. Again, this is a major departure. So when we talk about things like, okay, well, yeah, inflation is high, but it's been high before. Yeah. 50 years ago. When we talk about things like, well, housing prices are high, but they've been high before. Yeah. In the mid two thousands, but interest rates were lower and there was all these different mechanisms to try to get people into houses. Right. And then you got to go back once again, 50 years ago in order to find them as high again. But Something different is happening right now at the same time that all these economic factors are taking place, and that is cultural factors, which are changing significantly at the same time. And I would argue, in part because of, right, the, the, there's a relationship between the economic factors and the social factors. This is one of the reasons why I have a problem with people to just say, oh, we should just focus on the economics. These things are connected. Like we did a whole episode talking about fatherlessness and what happens when, when children are growing up in families where there's only one parent. And it turns out there's incredible consequences with respect to education, mental health, economics, you know, crime statistics and everything else. So it's important to understand that while not everything may be directly related, there is, there is a causal relationship between some of these stuff. These things interact with one another in ways that can be very detrimental. Uh, next slide. I just want to make sure I got the... Okay. Yeah. This is another one basically talking about the relationships. It says, but it looks like there will be fewer and fewer mothers over the next couple of decades as women choose to commit themselves to work rather than start a family. The number of single women in the U S is expected to increase 1.2% every year from 2018 to 2030 compared to an 
0.8% increase for the overall population. This is likely going to result in 45% of women between the ages of 25 and 44 who will be single and childless by 2030. This is an increase from 41% of women in that age group being single and childless in 2018, right? So we're seeing this this general uh, progression. These shifting lifestyle norms are enabling more women uh, with or without children to work full-time, which should continue to raise the labor force participation rate among single females. Um, so why, why do I bring kind of all of this up? Um, I, I think if you are someone at, at this stage in life, you're not just contending with high inflation. You're not just contending with a, you know, a difficult labor market. You're not just contending with high prices. You're not just contending with, uh, in, incredibly high tuition rates. Um, you're also contending with cultural changes that are taking place, which have completely, um, taken what, what people's expectations were for their life, right? I'm going to, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to graduate. I'm either going to go to college or someone else. I'm probably going to meet my wife in college. Um, we're, we're going to start a career. We're probably going to get a home. We're going to raise our kids. Like there's most people have this kind of like timeline within their lives. Well, culturally they've been told that that timeline is, is wrong. And that there's nothing, there's nothing good necessarily about that timeline. It may be one choice that people take. In fact, in, in certain areas, especially with respect to modern feminism, I, I think a lot of, of women, you would know this better than, than me, but a lot of women have this pressure that if they decide to, if they, if they decide to be a, a mother and manage the home, it's almost like they've betrayed the cause. Yeah. Um, and then on, on top of that, just from a, a social interaction standpoint with, with respect to race relations with respect to relations between the sexes with respect to uh, mental health issues which are skyrocketing all of these cultural components with respect to just a general belief that the United States was you know is is imperfect but but founded on some good principles and has overall been a force for good and that you as an individual living in the United States have access to opportunity and freedoms that are um, unique throughout world history and gives you the advantage over it. That just doesn't exist with younger generations in a way that it existed with previous generations. And, and part of the argument that we're going to make going into the second part where we start to answer, okay, why are some of these things happening and, and what are things that Gen Z and millennials can actually do about it? One of the, the biggest things I want to put some emphasis on is some of these technological luxuries that we refer to didn't just have positive effects. I think we've all recognized that there's also been negative effects associated with it. There's been a lot of economic disruption, which may in the long term be good. But one of the things that we know about economic disruption is that you can't really stop it. But by the same token, there's usually a pain period as people get used to a new dynamic and then on top of that, there's all kinds of social and cultural trends, which are just completely upending norms, which have been in existence for millennia. Can I highlight one little aspect that we maybe didn't quite touch on? Yeah. Okay. So we talked about women having children later and later, thinking of having, you know, getting into relationships later and later, staying single later and later. Um, and we're not allowed to talk about what kind of effects that has. And any time that we talk about certain numbers that really skyrocket, anytime there's two working members in the household and the kids have to be, you know, raised kind of on the go with, you know, a lot of daycare, a lot of going back and forth, you've got certain factors that, that skyrocket. First of all, women waiting to have their kids until they're closer to 40 now has 
increase the rate of birth defects like crazy. So if you're saying, man, it seems like we have a lot more people who have um, certain types of disabilities than we had before. Well, some of that would be chalk it up to later having children later in life. On top of that, um, you have childhood obesity that's skyrockets when both parents are are working because they're trying, they're on the go, they're doing a lot of processed foods, whatever it is. And obviously there are ways that you can manage that. But the, but the fact of the matter is this is not good for the family. It's not good for the future generation and not good for kids. Um, so you've got multiple aspects, you know, kids who are in daycare, a lot of their life um, are much more likely to have behavioral issues later on. Um, you've got a lot more mental illness that goes on because of all of these factors. And so this isn't just, oh, this one thing is different. It's like this perfect storm. You know, we yeah. talk about um, history repeats itself and oftentimes it does, but you have multiple aspects of history that, and when you've got got many, many things repeating themselves and colliding all at the same time, high interest rates, inflate high inflation uh you know parents having kids much later in life fatherless homes um you know you, there are so many things going on right now that it, it really concerns me for the future generations so for them to feel like they're getting you know kind of screwed i have to say you're right i think you've been lied to i think you know i think that Gen, I think millennials were lied to and yeah. Gen Z's being lied to. And it's all about pushing everybody through to, you know, you better go to college. You better be, you know, institutionalized like everybody else. Yeah. We've got two super chats here. One from Zim the Despot. He said, people like my high school counselor kept harping on college. Yet now that I have graduated from college, I keep thinking I should have gone to trade school. No, it's, it's an excellent point, and that's one of the things that we're going to get into here with respect to college is that um, higher educa education in general uh, can be a, a fine thing. What, what I find interesting is that people just automatically assume that higher education is a net positive. Well, no, that actually depends on a, on a variety of factors. If Like education in general, if education is the transference of knowledge and hopefully um, an, an element of wisdom, uh, from one generation or from one person to another person, well, then obviously that, that can be highly beneficial. However, if you learn to do the wrong thing or if you learn something that isn't so and you become committed to that particular knowledge, then the, the education you received is actually damaging. It's actually harmful. And, and the fact that you now have to pay an ever-increasing price for it is even more damaging. And so this is one of these things where we have gotten so used to these cliches with respect to education in general, with respect to higher education specifically, that all of a sudden we, we never look at like cost benefit analysis. It's just yeah. like, if I had to spend a hundred thousand dollars on my college degree, well, that's okay because the college degree is the pathway to success. Not necessarily. In fact, for you, that college degree might be a huge anchor around your neck. If one, it costs way more than your economic viability upon leaving that institution. And two, if it taught you things which don't accurately reflect the world that you're going to be operating in, not only did you waste your money, you waste your money making yourself worse. And this is why it's so important for people when they're considering education to really take a hard look at what do I want to do? What am I going to be taught at this institution? And is that going to actually set me up for success? And, and it's like, we don't even bother to ask those questions, at least not on, on any seriously critical terms. It's just always assumed that, well, it's always better than not doing it. 
That's not necessarily true. So Zim's absolutely right. And every university has a college loan officer ready to talk to any oh, yeah. 17, 18 year old who might want to go to that university. And they make it sound so simple and straightforward. Next thing you know, you're tens of thousands of dollars in debt. This next super chat is from Isaac. I don't blame these young people for being mad because everyone else mucked up the world and economy before them. I am, however, going to judge these recent protesters. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Totally. Um, um, got two, you want to respond to that? I got yeah, two more yeah. Super no, I, I think, and that was to Tina's point as well, is that I, I think it's really important to make sure that, you know, again, depending on the age of the person that you're talking to, there's a certain, there's always some sort of culpability with respect to the parents, the teachers, the various people that had influence on somebody during their formative years as they were actually developing what their worldview was and what the response was going to be. Now, at any, at some point, you are individually responsible for your own actions. And yes, it, you, you may have been taught something that intellectually could put you at a disadvantage, but you still have the capacity to learn, oh, that was wrong. I should probably think about this differently. Yeah. Right. And, and a big part of what we're going to be talking about today is that if someone has been taught, like I, I don't, I don't blame the kid that, that's grown up in communist China their entire life. I don't blame that 15 year old for thinking, oh yeah, I'm a communist. This is just the way their, their entire culture, their entire education has been immersed in a particular way of thinking. However, there, there comes a point a, a point of accountability where now you do possess on some level the ability to to interact with information in a way where you can make different decisions. And and that's kind of what this is about is, is how do we talk about these things. So let's let's start into the the first and, and this this goes into some of the questions that we saw on like time blindness or being hired or whatnot. So so why in general, we're gonna get into some of these questions that they get asked like why can't I get hired or why can't I get a good job? So let, let's look at this first um report here. And this was, uh, this was done by the New York post. And basically they were asking employers, uh, with respect to generations, who's, who is the hardest to work with? Now they said generate Gen Z. Now you could say, well, okay, they're also the youngest. And, and I think that would be a fair analysis of this. He goes, but here's what they, here's what they said more specifically, despite many of them having only just entered the workforce, generation Z, those born from 1997 onwards is already getting a bad rap at the office. According to a recent survey of 1300 managers, by the way, for, for anybody that's interested in kind of like surveys, studies, polls, things like that, over a thousand is, is you know, that, that's a, that's, that's a pretty good sample size, especially when you're talking about something specific as managers rather than just 1300 people at large, a recent survey of 1300 managers, three out of four agree that Gen Z is harder to work with than other generations. So much so that 65% of employers said that they have to fire them more often. One in eight have let go of a Gen Z less than one week after their start date, the study found. The results ring true with managers across the U.S. and in various industries who report the young hires have been difficult to deal with, particularly when it comes to language. I feel kind of hamstrung on what I can and can't say, Peter, a New Jersey-based manager in the hospitality industry, told The Post. Scroll down, please. Um. I don't want to offend anyone or trigger someone. I always have it in the back of my mind that I'm going to get angry one day and I'm going to get freaking canceled. Scroll down. Uh, for Alexis McDonald, a content creator who managed Gen Z employees at a tech company in Dallas, the biggest difference I've noticed was just a difference in professionalism. Right. I do think the pandemic had a big role to play in that because for all of them, this was their first job out of college and their last years were spent remote. 
Starting the careers during a pandemic may have stunted Gen Z's office etiquette. In fact, 36% of survey respondents reported poor communication skills among their young hires. So here, here's what I want to say, and this is something that I know I've we've kind of looked at with our own kids. It's something that I advise people on when we have like interns working in our office. Um, communi- communication skills are absolutely critical. And there's two things that I think have put Gen Z at a tremendous disadvantage on developing really good communication skills. One is a a lack of interpersonal communication, like face-to-face communication, because so much of it is done online. And the bottom line is people will say things online that they almost would never say to another person if they were standing there talking to them. Uh, They make assumptions about people based off of things that are said online that they probably would not make if they were right there in the same room with you. Um, there's There's a great deal more sympathy for someone's perspective or circumstances when you're standing there in front of them than when they're just a, a faceless person on on Twitter or anything else. And so if, if a lot of your interactive and your, your, your communications development took place on social media, all I can tell you is that it's, it's not a good environment for that. Social media obviously has some very good benefits. It's actually gonna be a really, really good learning tool in some respects. But in others, I think it puts you at a disadvantage. The other major thing, and this is something that is not so much Gen Z's fault, is that there has been, I would say, two elements of culture within our education system that has been horrible for Gen Z and is entirely the fault of those educators and the people like fostering these theories. One is this idea that your self-esteem is paramount. Like that is just nuts. The, The idea that just by existing and breathing in and out that you're special and you're wonderful and you're great and everyone should be, should just be lifting up whatever, whatever you do or whatever you say or whatever you think in order to help your self-esteem, that's that's absurd. Uh, that that creates narcissists who believe that the moment they have to contend with something that they don't like, it's somehow you know bad or evil, or or that they've been they've suffered some sort of injustice. And then on the other side of that, you're told that based off of your skin color, based off of your economic status, based off of your sex, based off of your sexual identity, you can now go into some sort of like special protected class, which gets to be insulated from any sort of criticism that, that could be, that, that could inconvenience you. And so there's this weird dynamic where for a while there, everything was about self-esteem and then everything was about oppressor versus oppressed. And there became this, this whole new language where we didn't only tell you what you were not allowed to say in polite society. They started telling you what you must say. They started compelling the speech and, and I can only imagine that has created just in a very, very difficult area to navigate. That's why people are saying, I don't even know how to, how do I interact with a Gen Z employee that's not doing their job well? Because the moment I, I tell them they're not doing their job well, it's not that I'm a mean boss. I'm a sexist. I'm a racist. I'm a transphobe. I'm, you know, any litany of other things. Because all it takes is for someone to identify within a particular category, and now I'm not allowed to say anything that might upset them. Yeah. This can is, I address? Can go, I address ahead, something Tina. real quick? Because you 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 said something, and I, I don't want it to be misunderstood. Um, you said something about you know these kids are being told that they're wonderful and they're great and they're this and they're that. Um, I want to make a distinction here. There is a difference between being fearfully and wonderfully made and having value um, eternally with with the Lord. Like as a Christian, we know that each person was purposed 
to be made by God for specific purposes. You know, like you actually have intrinsic value. But this is what I think might be going on here is that they're trying to tie people's value to the wrong things. And and so it's not that you just have intrinsic value at, at the get-go and then it's up to you what you do with that. And um, it's almost like trying to suppress the idea that you actually have to continue to, to uh, do good in your life or to behave well or get along with people or, or be like productive members of society. At this point, your value is actually now tied to your genetics, your skin color, your, you know, whatever it is. And, and they've done it so much. So to the fact, to the idea that they're actually now saying certain things, like they're saying science is whiteness, like an element of whiteness and certain things are whiteness and certain things are not and cultural appropriation and all this thing. And, and the interesting thing to me is, is that it's like in this effort to, um, create more of a level playing field, I guess, they have now completely destroyed the playing field and and um, basically are telling people of color, like science is not for you. And, you know, the English language is not for you. It's, it's these people. And yeah. it's very strange to me because I feel like um, there is this pernicious supremacy thing like underlying and it's, it's a, Anyway, I feel like it's very destructive, and and so I'm I'm not trying to say that every kid, um, you know, doesn't have value unless they do, you know, I don't know. Well, the, the idea just, the, the idea there's a difference between intrinsic value of just being a human being, and then every one of your little actions just being wonderful and adorable, and we don't keep score because it might make people feel bad. The world doesn't work that way, and and educating kids as if they do doesn't work well. I, I also it's like wanna, giving them like. A, a completely padded world, yes. like a bubbled world. And, until they leave and then all of a sudden they find out it's not so padded. Like, okay, so somebody in the comment section said uh, their name, uh, it says no one. So I love Nick and Tina, but this reminds me of the movie Snowpiercer where the middle of the train people talk among themselves from their point of view. Most people are poor. Where is their voice? So here's- Dude, I grew up being poor. <laughs> and, and you know, Nick didn't have money either growing up. So I'm, I'm sort of kind of sick of that claptrap. Honestly, like you can get out of it. I grew up with a single mother in rural Alabama in the 1990s who had no college degree. Yeah, my, my parents got divorced when I was three. My mom got remarried, got divorced again. My dad, like this. My and, family and, has like drug addiction issues. People have died young. There's, I'm sorry, but not I'm that not going to sit here. Not that I'm playing Olympics here. No, but it's also a, a ridiculous assumption that we don't have some experience to speak from. Here. Look, look to the person that made the comment. I, I, I mean, you may not be aware of like our own circumstances or whatnot. Here's the other thing I would say is that we're, when it, when it comes to actual overall poverty rates within the world and specifically within the United States, most people are not living in poverty. They're, they're not that now that's not to say that the people living in poverty aren't dealing with a lot of like issues. Um, but this is another thing too, that I, I bring up to Gen Z and millennials, whenever issues of things like the minimum wage comes up. So for instance, I, we, we had this debate within Virginia a while back where we're talking about, well, the way that we're going to help people who are living in poverty is we're going to raise the minimum wage. And I opposed it. And they're looking at me going, how could you oppose this? What, what sort of a horrible human being are you? And I remember I had this group of students in, in, my, in my class, or, or excuse me, in my office. And I asked them, I said, what percentage of people in the United States do you think make minimum wage? 
And, you know, a couple brave ones raised their hand and, and they thought it was between 30 and 50% of the labor force made minimum wage. It's more like 5%. Um, I mean, we can look up the exact numbers just to be just to be clear. If you want, Christian, if you want mind doing that real quick, but I think it's like five percent actually make minimum wage. And and then I said, okay, one. Well, and now out of this group of people, minimum wage. What do you think? Like the plurality, like most people making minimum wage. What what group do you think they fit into? It's less than two percent. Less than two percent. So I was, gosh, I had it doubled. Less than two percent. So out of the people making minimum wage, where do you think they usually fall within age-wise? And like, well, they're they're probably younger. I said, yeah, you're right. They're they're probably younger. I know because I worked for minimum wage when when I was younger. I said, now here's my other question: How many people do you think are making minimum wage right now? That if they continue in the same job for six months, are still going to be making minimum wage? And they're like, well, very few. I said, almost none. I said, so now let me ask you a question because what we were considering in Virginia was over the next few years, doubling the minimum wage. I said, if you make it twice as expensive to hire an entry-level worker, do you think you're going to get more or fewer? Probably fewer. I said, yeah, you're, you're, I said, a couple of things are going to happen. You're either going to get, uh, you know, especially small businesses, which are a lot of the people hiring minimum wage workers, they're either going to fire one employee and then just pick up more hours, or they're going to raise the prices of, of the goods or services that they offer in order to adjust for the additional labor costs. So now, even if, even if the person who keeps their job is making more money, the things around that they have to buy just went up in cost in order to make up for that additional cost. And, and the point that I was trying to make to these students who were very well-intentioned and for them to just seem like this is a really easy solution, just raise the minimum wage. It was, you're, you're actually going to hurt the people you're trying to help the most because it will cause increased prices and it will cause fewer opportunities for entry-level workers. Um, and so if we want to address a particular issue, let's address it. But we can't just make it as easy as, oh, well, the government just waved a wand and made something so and now people are better off. And, and unfortunately, and unfortunately, this is something I talk a lot about with, um, students that I speak to. So many of them have been taught sometimes by their teachers, sometimes by just popular culture in general. They've been taught that the way that you solve problems is you, you call up a legislator and you make a law, you make a regulation, you raise a tax, you create a penalty, you subsidize something. And, and there's, Nothing goes beyond asking that original question of how much should we subsidize or how much should we tax or how much should we regulate? It's just, well, this will solve it. And, and that you're going to find that a common theme in a lot of things that we talk about. In fact, let's, let's go to the next, um, the next. Nick, I'd love to jump in here and say a few things. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, I think a lot of people look at this situation and blame, you know, kids getting cell phones. And I think there's absolutely, that's part of it. But I think what's, what we should focus on is Gen Z is the first generation that has done the majority of their communication through a piece of technology. And I think if you were to examine the text messages from, you know, people in Christianized generation and then Gen Z, you would find that Gen Z writes in much shorter hand than yeah. than what Christian and I would do would do. And I think that that style of communication is very different than what you would do face to face in an office and that makes a very makes it very difficult to transition. Um, so has cell phones played an impact? Absolutely. Snapchat, TikTok, everything. And it's also the first generation that has been at a mass scale influenced by a single form of messaging through a social media platform. Like every, you know, member of Gen Z can go on TikTok and consume the same messaging. 
And that I think that is that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, yeah. And while it might be kind of negative on one aspect because they maybe can't communicate as well in certain scenarios, they do exceptionally well in other areas. And yeah. so sometimes it's just a matter of figuring out how to make this incorporate into our society, you know, in a, in, to more of a degree. I feel like there's a little bit of a push and pull going on. Yeah, I agree. The, what, um, the, the, there, there's one thing that I wanted to bring up um, uh, a, a few minutes ago. There, there was somebody in the comments, and I think this is actually a really good point. There was somebody in the comments that said that wages have been outpaced by inflation for decades. It's easy to dismiss these concerns, talking about things like minimum wage or home yeah. prices or any of this other stuff. It's easy to dismiss these concerns as being a source of childish, lazy behavior. But it's far more nuanced than that. And I, I really do think that there's some truth to that. I was also sitting here listening to um, you and Tina, Nick, go, um, you know, talking about like the the you know, almost, you know, the, the self-esteem culture and, and, you know, everybody gets a trophy and we don't keep points and stuff like that. And then I kept thinking, cause like I played sports as a kid, I went through that stuff as a kid yeah. and yes, I'm not, I'm not uh, a zoomer, but I'm the youngest of the millennials. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, but it wasn't me that chose that stuff. It was who were the coaches who oh, were yeah. the the teachers who were the ones that were pushing all this stuff gen z in some ways are guinea pigs they are the first they, they are the first generation in american history to have been raised off of a particular type of values and culture and worldview that i i think is actually incredibly self-destructive and so it's easy to dunk on these people for for having stupid TikToks, right? It's it's easy to to look at libs of TikTok or look at YouTube and then look at these people in their in their early twenties or, or their late teens and then be like, haha, these stupid kids, you know, they don't like. But we have to ask ourselves, who raised those those kids? They they didn't just pop into the. That's you know, exactly what I said earlier. Like, like yeah. who raised them? Who taught them? Who instilled certain values in them? Because quite frankly. The Gen Z are not entirely, I, I do believe that individual responsibility is a, is a thing, right? But like you can't raise an entire generation, a certain set of self-destructive values and worldviews, and then be surprised when those people, shocker, okay. self-destruct when they enter the real world. But, but, but here, here's what I'm going to say, because we, we got a but question. But some of this behavior deserves to be mocked, honestly. And, well, and so, so it's not that you're mocking the entire generation, but when they put something out there for the world to see that is patently ridiculous, it deserves to be mocked. And you know why? Because that's a good corrective mechanism. But who taught them those? Okay. It doesn't matter. Go ahead, they Nick. can correct because they've been mocked now and they yeah. appropriately so. I, I would, there, there is a social benefit to mocking. There's a social benefit to comedy. That's why we have it, right? It, it allows us to address certain issues, which might be more difficult to address just, just sitting down and discussing. And sometimes comedy opens up better dis discussions as a result. So I'm not saying dunking on stuff is always wrong. What I'm saying though, is that if the dunking is not followed up by an, an actual explanation of what is wrong and why, well, then it's just for your benefit, not for the benefit of the other person. So, so Susie Clancy asked question. I'm a Gen Xer. We have one daughter, a millennial, and another, a Zoomer. All the insanity with what is going on with them. Did my generation create this social nightmare? Here, here's what I want to say, and this is the part where I, I think we need to be a, a little bit more careful. Tina brought this up with these, these wide-sweeping comments about generations. 
right? Generations have trends within the generation. That doesn't mean that everyone within that generation re- responded a certain way or taught a certain thing or whatever it is. And so it's important that we don't get too caught up in saying, oh, because you're part of this generation, therefore this. That's a broad generalization and, and they don't work. They're okay for certain things. They're not good for other things. Here's what I would say to, to Christian's point. Tina brought this up earlier as well. When our kids were little, I remember us taking um, them to soccer games. And I remember on some of those soccer games, we got told, oh, we don't keep score. And my attitude was cool. I do. And I remember one time specifically, Luke was very little. He was playing soccer, right? A typical peewee soccer where they're kind of interested maybe part of the time. And they were playing the game and we were keeping score regardless of what the refs or the coaches or anyone else were done. And so he got done. He's like, you know, dad, uh, you know, we won. Did I do a good job? And I looked at him and I said, no. And, and he goes, and he said, but we won. I said, yeah, buddy, but you didn't do your job. You, you were out there chasing bees and picking flowers and stuff like that. You like, you weren't, you weren't doing your job. And so the answer is, is that if you don't do your job, if you don't support your team in the way that you're supposed to, whether you win or lose, you haven't done your job and it's important that you do that. And next game we're out there and they lose and and he's kind of despondent. I'm like, you did a good job though, but we lost. I said, I get that. And the winning is important, right? The winning is not insignificant. The winning is important, but you did your job this time. You guys got outplayed, right? That, you know, work harder next time, practice some more, get better as you do this, learn from things. Right, but you did your job. You weren't goofing around. You weren't asking the coach whether or not you were going to get another snack every five minutes. Right, like you were out there doing your job. And and other parents would look at that sometimes, like, oh well, you know, gosh, they're they're only five. Like, yeah, and if I don't want them to be a brat at six, or or completely incompetent at ten, or a, a human being I don't want to hang out with at twenty four then when they're old enough to start recognizing things and asking questions and understanding things, you better start telling them the truth, right? In a way that's age appropriate, but that also reflects reality because they're going to learn soon enough that crap doesn't work. But the worst possible feeling is when the, this is what I think, this is the the part where I'm most sympathetic with, with Gen Z and certain millennials. They're looking around going, wait a second. It's not that I wasn't listening. It's not that I wasn't applying what I was taught. It's that I was listening. I applied with what I was taught and it's not working. Why is it not working? And then the same people that taught them the crap are coming in going, oh, it's because your landlord's greedy. It's because your boss is mean and they just don't want to pay you more. It's because of the patriarchy. It's because of white supremacy. It's because, no, it's because you were taught a bunch of garbage by the people that are now using the poor results of you applying the garbage in order to try to accumulate more power for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and some of them might not even been aware that they're doing it to that degree, but I'm becoming less and less, I'm becoming less and less sympathetic to the idea that people are just pitching bad ideas because they don't get it. And I'm starting to think, no, you're pitching bad ideas because you benefit from it at the expense of others. Yeah. And it's like a huge social experiment. Well, and, and I, I don't wrong. know, I don't even know that it's so much an experiment. I think when I look at things like critical theory, when I look at things like the March of the Institutions and Gramsci, when I look at, uh, you know, queer theory, when I look at critical race theory, when I look at postmodernism, I don't see a grand social experiment. I, I see a really bad worldview that has reached a level of, of acceptance within popular culture to we're now seeing the effects of it. See, it's all fine and good when these stupid ideas are left in a university classroom somewhere, 
But now all of a sudden they're in the HR department. They're, 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 they're actually there when they're developing new movies and music, right? They're, they're showing up in committee meetings when people are pushing legislation, right? The, these bad ideas are, have escaped the university and they're now in your kids' elementary school, middle school, high school. That's they're, because they're now, they didn't escape the, the university. They were taught and sent out from the university as a product. Well, but that's, that's the point. Yeah. Right. The point is, is that now it's showing up in law. Now it's showing up in the workforce. Now it's showing up in the arts and entertainment. And and the more it dominates within those areas, the, the it, it again, it's not as if, oh, well, the culture has now adapted to a new paradigm and things will start working again as soon as we adapt as well. No, these things don't work because they're not true. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it every time that, that, that we run into, you know, seeing the end result of, of some of these extremely, like I call them, self-destructive ideas being pushed within society, because that's what's happening. Like, like I said earlier, Gen Z is, they're guinea pigs. They're, they're, they're guinea pigs that became willing guinea pigs, many of them eventually. And, yeah. and, and I'm saying this as a generalization. Obviously, there are conservative, and we've talked about this, there's actually a lot more conservative Gen Z men that, that are, are waking up, you know, they're taking the red pill, so to speak, and they're realizing that society is being programmed to hate me and I haven't done anything. I haven't achieved anything yet in life. And yet I'm being, I'm, I'm being blamed and accused for everything out there. So I, I do, again, as easy as it is to dunk on people on, on Twitter and TikTok and stuff like that, I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for some of these people. Now, some of these other people, I don't have a lot of sympathy for. If you're voting for the problem, I don't have sympathy when you're complaining well, about the problem. But see, that's the point. They're, they're, they don't think they're voting for the problem. They think they're voting for someone that has promised them. Because again, if you've been convinced that the reason why I can't get hired or the reason why I can't afford housing, let, let's, let's use this as an example, all right? Because uh, Christina said, this is why they don't teach economics in public school. It's purposeful. Christina, I would say they do teach economics, or they, would, they teach, um, but they teach really bad economics. And the sort of economics that they teach is whenever there's a problem within society, it's because the private market has failed and therefore we need wise politicians to come in and correct it. And let me give a perfect example of this because it applies to that one video of the, the young woman in Canada. It applies to the United States. When, when you hear young people talk about, um, that makes me sound like such an old guy. When young people, when the youths talk about- How do you uh, do, fellow, yeah, yeah, <laughs> fellow, fellow kids? Fellow kids. <laughs> <laughs> but when they talk about like, I, I'll never be able to afford a house- or rent is totally out of control. Okay, chances are they, they might be right, or, or, or they might, maybe they're not right that they'll never be able to afford one. That can be a little bit dismal, but they feel like they're certainly at a, at a competitive disadvantage from previous generations. So the question that we should be asking ourselves is, okay, what, what happens in any sort of environment where you have a high degree of demand, when you have a high degree of demand and, and low supply? Prices go up. When you have high demand and low supply, prices go up. When you have high supply and low demand, prices go down. Right? This is just a, a basic fundamental concept of economics. It isn't going away. It's not evil. It's not mean. It's not greedy. It just exists. Okay. And so the way that you actually get the equilibrium that you want, right? Because the equilibrium that you want is an intersection between price and quality. So you want the best value for whatever price you're paying, right? You, you pay too little and all of a sudden it's, you're getting a garbage product. You pay too much and it's not worth what you actually bought. But if you get a perfect intersection of price and quality, that's the sweet spot. And a perfect example of this is Good Ranchers. 
That's right. Oh yeah. We had somebody in the comments, believe it or not, say, where's the, where's the, ad oh transition? yeah, there it is. There it is. And the reason why I mentioned this is because guess what? We have a new deal for you. That's the right. The new deal. The new deal, but a good, good new deal, not the bad new deal from the FDR administration. But anyway, so this, this new deal, this new deal. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I don't get this wrong because I was reading through this. It was like, Ooh, Ooh, this, this, this is really good. So you get, you get $15 off. This is when you go to goodranchers.com. You put in promo code Nick. Not only do you get $15 off your order, but do you remember back in the day? And by that, I mean like last month where if you signed up for one of the subscriptions for a year, you would get free ground beef with your subscription. Well, they've decided to expand that. So now if you don't want ground beef, maybe you're looking at going, eh, ground beef's okay. I like, I like hamburgers are great, but I want some more variety and options. Well, Good Ranchers has heard you. So now you get to pick for a free sirloin. You can pick free bacon. You can, oh, you can pick that's a game free changer. wild caught salmon. You can pick free chicken breasts. I'm sensing more, I'm sensing more, more buffalo, buffalo chicken, chicken mac, mac, right? But think <laughs> about that. When you sign up, here's what this means. Here's what this means for you. If you're, if you're worried about inflation and everything else, it means you get locked into a subscription. You not only get $15 off when you use promo code Nick, but you get one of these gift boxes and you can get up to $480 of free meat. No, no, Nick, the gift boxes, that's, that's a bit separate. We do sorry, need to hit sorry. that. Subscriptions, to, subscriptions, $480 of free meat. But let me tell everybody, if right. you are looking for a gift for someone in your life and they love steak, they love chicken, and they love potentially good ranchers, they have launched three new gift boxes that you can purchase through Black Friday, and I believe they'll ship it directly to the address you want. The good prices are good. You've got burgers, steak, all different kinds of stuff, so check that out. If you're looking for a present for somebody before Christmas, this would be a great idea. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. So once again, goodranchers.com, promo code Nick, $15 off your order, plus you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you're going to get to choose between either top sirloin, fresh caught uh, salmon or wild caught salmon, uh, chicken breast or bacon as your free meat to go with that subscription. And then they have the whole gift box options as well. One of the perfect gifts that you can give for this holiday season. Goodranchers.com. Go and check it out. Okay. We should do a poll in the future of which one of those options people oh, would want. I have, I'm willing to bet that bacon would win in a landslide. Yeah. That, that's because you can wrap all the other meat in bacon. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'd be pretty keen on some salmon personally. Because you, you know what goes salmon. good with bacon? More bacon. <laughs> More bacon. <laughs> right. I put bacon on my bacon. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, like, actually, speaking of, like, you know, prices and stuff like that, because that, that's that's one of the things that, that you talk about a lot when we do these ad transitions is the whole locking in the price. Going back to, not, not going back to the ad, obviously, but going back to the whole prices thing, I actually pulled up, um, like, while we were talking about this episode before we started uh, going live, I actually pulled up some of these, like, numbers here that... I think really are younger millennials and Gen Zers that are just entering the workforce or, or just looking, you know, to, to try to start a family or buy a house or, you know, just go into the real world. They're, they're looking at this and they're just so dejected. So you brought up earlier in this podcast that like, you know, interest rates used to be very high in the 80s and the Volcker era back yeah. when we had stagflation. Thanks, Nixon. Thanks, Carter. But um you know, I mean, at one point they were like almost 20%, right? Yeah. So I, I looked up like home prices, 
mortgage rates, household income, all of these things from 1983, so 40 years ago, versus today. And the stuff that I came across is just really dejecting. And and I, I think this is part of the problem that's feeding into some of this depression and anger that you're seeing with, with Zoomers and younger millennials. For example, in 1983, the median household income was about $24,500. The median home price was about $75,000 and change. It was like $75,300. The interest rate, and it was actually starting to come down at this point, was 13.74%. Yeah. <laughs> but what that means, though, is that the home-to-income ratio, right? So the amount of money that your household income is, is bringing in versus what the home price is, that was, a, that was about three. It was 3.06, yeah. which is actually, in the grand scheme of things, quite reasonable. And then when you look at the monthly mortgage rate to income percentage. So what percent of your paycheck is basically going to your mortgage, assuming a 20% uh, down payment? It was about a third of your income. It was, it was 34.33%, which is about what historically financial advisors and people who work in real estate or people who, who help you, know, you budget would, would tell you that you should be spending on a house. So even with 13, almost 14% interest rates, it was actually quite reasonable to afford a home. You could do it, especially yeah. if you you had a, a mother and a father together that you had two parent income, right? It, you could absolutely do it back in the 80s. Now today, the median household income's gone up a lot. It's $75,000 and change. The median home price though has gone up a lot faster. It's $431,000. That's the median. Yeah. Income, uh, house price. Interest rates are just under 8%, yeah. which is a little bit higher than average, obviously. The average yeah. usually is about like five historically over the past like 40 years or so. Um, and the home to income ratio, this is the thing that is tr truly shocking. The, ho the home to income ratio is almost six. Mm -hmm. So it's almost doubled from from 1984 back when interest rates were were you know 14% mortgage rates were almost 14%. And then when you when you look at the amount of money that you're having to put in again assuming a 20% down payment and remember a 20% down payment on $431,000 that's that's a lot of money. That's yeah. a lot of money. Uh, the 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 ratio that you're spending on your home though assuming you made the 20% down payment is over 40%. Yeah. Can I, can I bring up one little aspect yeah, of go this? Because I don't know if you've walked through some homes from back then versus homes now. Yeah. But square footage has increased incredibly. In fact, the average single family house in the United States has overall increased in size just since the two thousand. Just since two thousand, the medium home size has grown since nineteen eighty one hundred and fifty percent. Yeah, houses so are over twice as the big. The size is bigger too. So some of this too is. I wonder some of what could be driving it is expectations of of a much more lavish lifestyle. I, I think there I think I think there absolutely is. This is one of the issues that we talk about when we talk about like overall wages and and quality of life and purchasing power. So the purchasing power of the dollar has just been decimated, right? It it it's it's been it's been harmed significantly through inflationary monetary policy. And, and the point that I want to make is that when we, we sit here and we say inflation, we all know what we're talking about. What, what I've noticed with a lot of students that I talk to is when they hear inflation, what they hear is greedy companies. They hear greedy landlords, right? They, they, because they're the ones raising the prices, right? And 
one of the things that, that I'll do when I'm doing these like dialogues and whatnot with students is I'll say, okay, well, but the question you have to ask is why are they raising prices, right? There's any number of reasons that you can raise prices within the economy that has nothing to do with overall inflation. The overall inflationary economy that we're talking about right now is because of the federal government. It's not because of your landlord. It's not because of your boss. It's because the Fed in, in, coordination with the treasury and the federal government printed $3 trillion in the space of a year. Yeah. When, when you do that in, in the, and this is the part which is almost like a light bulb for these students when you're talking about it. It's like, again, going back to supply and demand. If, if all of a sudden I just print off a bunch of paper money and I throw it into the economy, that doesn't mean that there's any more lumber it doesn't mean that there's any more workers. It doesn't mean that there's any more vehicles. It doesn't mean that there's any more products or services. All you have is more money competing for the products and services. So the overall value of your individual dollar has to go down. If, you've if you drastically increase the supply of paper money, right, the value of each individual dollar goes down as a result. That's how inflation works. And, and, Again, Elizabeth, it's all fine for Elizabeth Warren to get up there and be like, oh, well, you know, they're saying that it's all because of inflation, but oil profits are higher than ever. Well, it depends on when you start counting some of this stuff. Not to mention the fact that, yeah, you're right, Elizabeth Warren, inflation doesn't affect everybody the same. Because guess what? When the Federal Reserve takes out, buys up all these treasuries and it gets pushed out, it's not like each individual American is given their equal share of whatever the inflation was. It goes into banks. Right. And they love to posture for that sort of power. They love to say that, well, gosh, if we don't get this money, then we're going to fail our depositors. And the next thing we know, we're going to have a run on the bank. And that's going to have bad economics. We've got to bail out Silicon Valley we, Bank's depositor. Yeah. We, <laughs> and so you, you look at this and you're like, OK, I understand the inflation, but understand that the people that are telling you that this is just your boss arbitrarily. I love it when Elizabeth Warren says, there's I'll tell you why we have uh, inflation. Greed. <sighs> Let me explain something. She's actually go, not wrong. How about go, political greed? <laughs> go sit on your couch right now and think greedy thoughts and see if you get any wealthier in the process. Right? Greed is a motivation. It's not an action. Right? So what Elizabeth Warren should probably consider here is what are the actions that lead to inflation? And we know this over centuries worth of analysis and data that if you arbitrary print, arbitrarily print a bunch of paper money, you're going to have generalized inflation throughout the economy. And the people that get the money first will benefit because guess what? When they get the money first, they can come in and they can buy up real estate. They can buy up products and services. And then it's only after the economy has realized, the market has realized, oh my gosh, there's all these you know, there, there's all this demand for these particular resources that the prices have to go up in order to meet that demand, right? So that you can actually provide for future supply. So the, the point that I would say to, again, Gen Z millennials is be mad about inflation, but it's not your boss and it's not your landlord. In, in the vast majority of cases, could, could you have a crappy boss? Sure. Could you have a crappy landlord? Yes. Are they responsible for econo economy-wide inflation? No. They can't be. They don't have the power. There's really only one institution that does, and that's the, the one that controls the printing press. And so please be skeptical of these politicians that are offering you up a very easy villain as, as a substitute for themselves, because that's what this is, right? It's very easy for you to say that the boss that maybe you don't like at the job you're not thrilled about is the bad guy. And so that's what they offer you. 
And then you know what they say? And if you elect us, we'll make sure that you're taking care of the way that you should be. And this leads me to my, this leads me to another point. I, I want to, for anybody, somebody was commenting early about wages being stagnant. One of the things that we have to take into consideration with, with stagnant wages is that a part of this is also a negative impact of inflation. Because if you're, if you're, if you're part of the investor, if you're part of the investor class, which by the way, anybody can work themselves up into being part of the investor class. I don't mean to, to suggest that this is a fixed group of people that are evil and nefarious, right? If you have a 401k, you're, you're investing. The point is, is that if you're someone that can move your money around very easily with respect to your investments, you can actually avoid a lot of the negative consequences of inflation. Not all of them, but you can certainly avoid it a whole lot better than somebody living on a fixed income and relying on savings because inflation is ultimately a tax on savings. But here's the other thing that businesses have done that politicians have done, and they've convinced poorer people who, who are, you know, again, the net victims of these same politicians policies. They do things like this statutory benefits, so you're asking like, why can't, why, why am, why can I only make $15 an hour at this job? Well, technically you're not technically you're probably making a lot more than $15 an hour. The difference is, is that what happened was the government stepped in and said, you have to have social security, security and Medicare. Um, you have to pay into that. Now you, you may use Medicare one day. You may not. Um, social security, you're probably looking at now wondering if it's actually going to be there for you when you're older. Well, regardless, you have to pay for it now. And by the way, you're not paying for social security, Medicare as some sort of benefit for you that you might use in the future. You're paying for the current beneficiaries in the hope that one day when you need it, there will be beneficiaries paying into it. So you can actually take it out. Unemployment insurance. This is another thing where I, I have paid into unemployment insurance all my life. You know how much unemployment insurance I've used? Zero. Zero. Does this mean unemployment assurance didn't exist before the government got involved? No, it could. It could involve itself in a lot of different ways. It could be that you set money aside in savings. It could be that you invested in something that you could then earn interest off of, right? It could be that, you know, you, you did something else, but the government decided that, nope, we're going to pay for unemployment insurance. We're going to force you to pay for it. So now a part of your paycheck goes into playing for unemployment Not insurance. Just, so a part of your paycheck goes toward it, but then they also, as an employer, have to match it. Yeah, well, this and is on yeah. the other side. And so that's a portion that you actually, you can't see that part on your check, but they're matching you, which is also part of your pay. And then if you want to work for yourself, they make you pay all of it. That, I, yeah. that was a point I was going to address is we're talking about wages, wages, wages. But some of the reason why people are so dependent on wages is because everything has been set up education system, everything else is set up to make good employees. Yeah. They are not set up to foster entrepreneurship. They're just not. And, and this, in fact, in our society right now, you're actually punished to, if you want to start a business and you want to do certain things, you're punished through regulation, taxes, all kinds of restrictions, yeah. certifications, everything that you need to do to get going. And it's this overwhelming fear that you're going to run afoul of the government every time you go to try to sell something. And so yeah. you're dependent now on wages because the government has made you so. I believe it, it was the CEO of um, uh, Home Depot who once said, this was like maybe, this was like almost 10 years ago, I believe. And imagine how worse it's gotten since then. He once said something like, if I tried to start Home Depot today, I couldn't. Yeah. Well, and it, 
if you if you look at all these statutory benefits, the, the point here is is that you are actually your compensation package is actually bigger than it was in the past. The difference is is that you don't get to see it because a lot of the stuff that you're paying into, you might not ever actually use. Like workers' compensation insurance, family and medical leave act, right? These are all things that the government came in and told your employer, you, and, and this is this is the trick. Please understand, this is the trick that they do. They say, "Oh, well, you're only paying half of it because your employer has to match it." No, you're paying all of it mm -hmm. because the employer has a certain amount of money that they can use for labor. And now it used to be that you have the ability to go in and be like, I want, you know what, if I can make up to 20, let's say $22 an hour, I want $22 an hour. I don't want unemployment insurance. I don't want workers' compensation insurance. I don't want family and medical leave back. I don't want that. I just, I just want the money. I need the money. Can I have the money? Mm -hmm. You don't get to make that decision anymore. And, and even if you think, well, okay, well, but I'm still getting the full benefit because I'm only paying half. No, you're not. Once again, the employer has a certain amount of money for labor that they can spend. And if the government says that they've got to spend, you know, whatever, $7 out of the, the 22 on, on these things, which you may or may not use or may or may not be the beneficiary of, tough. Well, then, then all you, all that's left over for you is the $15. And, and again, you may be someone that says, you know what, Nick, I, I kind of like this though. Great then I would love it if you have the option because it's not like the private sector can't provide for this. What, what is social security? It's, it's old age retirement. What is Medicare? It's medical. What is unemployment insurance? Well, it's essentially a, a fund that you would put money into in case you get fired unexpectedly and you need it. What's workers compensation insurance? Same sort of thing. I got hurt unexpectedly and now I need to, you know, I need money while I'm recouping what's family and medical leave act. Well, I might have a kid, right? Like there, there's, there's a private sector response to all of this. The difference is, is that in the private sector, you would get the full amount of your, your, the pay that you could be paid. And then you would choose what you wanted to do. But the government has come in and said, no, no, we're not going to, we're not going to let you have that choice. We're going to make it for you. And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at one statistic wages. And we're going to say, oh, well, wages are stagnant because you've taken a significant portion of what could be my wage and forced me to contribute to a bunch of government run programs, which, oh, by the way, are not run well and have a horrible amount of overhead, fraud, waste, and abuse. And because the Federal Reserve prints money and historically lowered interest rates repeatedly for the last 40 years, it's, it's, it's a combination of multiple factors. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible fiscal policy at the federal level, terrible regulatory policy at the federal level, and also terrible monetary policy at the federal level. All it's, it's, it's a three-legged stool, all of those things working together to result in, in the perception and in many cases, the reality of wages being stagnant for 40 years. Nick, there's an analogy that you um, told me once several years ago. I don't know if you remember it. And if you don't, I'll try to rephrase it or, or as best I can. But you once gave me an analogy about all of these like benefits that are required by law. And you try to explain that if that same logic was applied to our car insurance, yeah, it would be something like, you know, oh, our, our gas would be free or when, you know, you know, oil changes would be free. You know, we'd get, you know, free windshield wiper fluid every, every month. And our car insurance would be $1,500 a month. It's the, it's the, it's the health insurance versus car insurance. And, and this is this is another issue that people get upset with, rising costs of health care. And I remember I, I had a constituent come in and she goes, Nick, I just want to talk. You, I know we don't agree on a lot, but you seem reasonable. And I want to talk to you about Medicaid expansion and, and Obamacare and whatnot. So, okay, fine, let's do it. 
And so she sits down and she starts to talk about, and she gives me a, a very, very compelling emotional argument. And I want to give her her due, right? She worked in a free clinic. She took this seriously. She volunteered her own time. She, this was something that she had some knowledge on at, at the ground level. Um, and she wanted something done about it. And I, and I said, well, can I ask you a question? So what, what is your problem with the American healthcare? So like, what are your major problems with the American healthcare system? And the first thing she said was, well, it's too expensive. I said, okay, I, I agree, but can we, can we, can we quantify that a little bit? Like, what do you mean too expensive? She goes, well, you know, people can go in, in, into debt or they can go broke or they can lose their house just paying for life-saving surgeries and things like that. I said, okay, I, I agree that it's expensive. I said, but don't you think the government bears some of the responsibility for why it's so expensive? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, for instance, why don't we have more doctors? Why don't we have more hospitals? Why can't an 18 Delta, who is a special forces medic, provide basic medical care like giving your kids stitches? Why do I have to have a $10,000 ambulance ride right, and, and pay the insurance? Well, the reason why is because in the American healthcare system, the people with insurance are not only paying for their healthcare, they're paying for everybody else's healthcare who doesn't have insurance. That's why. Wasn't said, that one of the reasons the Heritage Foundation tried to push for Obamacare before Obamacare they, with the they, individual it was mandate? The whole thing in Massachusetts, yeah, it was, it was about making sure that everyone had to pay for, for, it was a horrible system even when they did it. But the point was this, is I said, okay, you have a problem with expense. Well, the, again, what happens when demand is high, right, and supply is low? How do you lower costs? You increase supply. I said, okay, so here's my question. What's standing in the way of us having more doctors? What's standing us in the way of us having more nurses? What's standing? Well, a lot of it has to do with federal regulation that started in the 1920s that allowed organizations like the American Medical Association and others to be able to set up standards across the board for what you had to do. And guess what? The university system loved this because you had to go to university system to be able to go through and get the appropriate credentials to be able to practice medicine. Now, what was the argument for that? Well, the argument was, is you got all these charlatans out there and these snake oil salesmen. Okay, great. Well, now you have, you have some really high, highly qualified doctors. In fact, for some of the things that they're doing, you could say overqualified, and now it's really expensive. I said, so there, there's actually a solution to this, and that is it, you don't have to lower the standards for everything, but you can say that there are certain services, certain basic services that are actually fairly cheap and fairly easy to handle. And lo and behold, in the private sector, where you have these little clinics setting up that's saying, look, we provide these services, we don't work with insurance, we take cash. Lo and behold, it's significantly cheaper. But then guess what happens? The hospitals come in with certificate of public need laws <laughs> because the government has told the hospital, you are not allowed to charge people that come into the emergency room for your services. I mean, can, you can charge Can I them. just tell the audience real quick? This is actually law in Virginia. Oh, it's law in most I, places. I, 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 I feel bad for cutting you off right there, Nick. But the reason I'm saying this is because you and other people have been fighting this in the legislature for years. And I just wanted to give the audience like some background knowledge that like. This is not a hypothetical thing. No, a lot exists. of people don't know about COPN laws, but what no. Nick is explaining here, and, and, and Nick, please continue with explaining it. I, well, it, again, the, the way this, and the way I was explaining it to my constituent is, is so now if you have a clinic that comes in and says, we provide these services, the hospital will come in and question the legality of them providing the services. And the reason why they can do that is because the hospital has, politicians told the hospital, you have to, weigh, you have to give away goods and services for free. You have to do it. 
And the hospital said, well, okay, but if we have to give away goods and services for free, then we have to have a certain regional monopoly on the provision of other services so somebody else can't come in and give them to, give them to us for a lower price. Right? And on some level, you kind of get where they're coming from. But this, once again, has an increase, not to mention the fact that, once again, why, why do you pay for everything through insurance and medicine? That doesn't make any sense. Insurance is for unexpected expenditures. Right, these people. I love it when people say things like, "We need insurance for pre-existing conditions," that that completely violates what insurance is for. You don't get insurance for things that you know are going to happen. Right, catastrophic car insurance is for when you get into an accident. You don't go get it and then go purposely get into accidents. Like for, and this is the point. This is the comparison between health insurance and car insurance. If car insurance were were to have an a um, a uh, pre-existing condition requirement, like they were trying to push for healthcare. Here's what that means. It means I could get my car and I could drive it without insurance. And then the moment I got into an accident that was going to cost $25,000, I could call up Geico and be like, Hey, I need you to insure me at $200 a, a month. Oh, but by the way, you also need to pay $25,000 because I just crashed my car. They'd go out of business. It wouldn't work. Okay, and it's the same thing with health. So why does health insurance stay in business? Because the government heavily subsidizes it. We see this all the time. And so what I would do as I was explaining to her that everything that you're mad about with American healthcare is not a result of too little government intervention into healthcare. It's because government's already intervened into healthcare. It's the same thing with drug prices. The solution is not more politicians manipulating the marketplace. The solution is politicians getting out and allowing intelligent people to work and innovate and create new solutions and increase supply. So once again, you're mad about healthcare? Good, you should be. But direct a significant portion of that anger to the politicians that have set up and encouraged a system that other people have now managed to exploit within the marketplace. They couldn't exploit it the way they're doing right now if politicians hadn't allowed them to. But what are you doing? You're getting mad at these people, and then you're giving a pass to these people who are about to make it worse. And that is a reoccurring theme that you're going to see across multiple different issues that that, that Zoomers are upset about. And I don't actually know a lot of Zoomers that are ter- – I mean, I, some Zoomers are obviously upset about healthcare, but – they're only going to become more upset about that as they as they get older and then they actually need to use those resources. Those that are, you know, are complaining about it. But like the things that Zoomers right now, I think, are complaining the most about, it's the same principle that applies. It's things like housing. It's things like rent. It's things like groceries. Well, and we're going to we're going we're gonna to get into this, some of that, too. Like I Mar- think Mar- that's Mar- part Siegel. of the reason why you've got sort of this extended adolescent adolescence going on because everything's so high. You've got people launching a lot later because there's just no way they can do it. Like it used to be 18, I'm going to jump out on my own and, you know, join up with a couple of friends and get a place. You can't do that. See, Mr. Alley Cat 1969 says, blame the insurance companies. They want to sell policies. Mr. Alley Cat. Yes, they do want to sell policies and people want to buy policies. That's not the problem. The problem is when the government comes into the marketplace and tells companies that we're going to tax you if you pay people this much, but if you give them free health insurance, or not free, but if you give them health insurance as part of the compensation package, right, then all of a sudden now they can actually, you can actually offer your employee a better compensation package. Right? The government is once again the people that set it up this way. 
So no, don't blame the insurance companies. Blame the politicians that created the conditions where insurance companies have to operate a certain way, which isn't serving your needs. Now, am I telling you to go out there and trust every single insurance company? No, there's bad people in the private sector, just like there's bad people in politics. What I'm telling you is that the worst people in the private sector are the ones working with the politicians to create these conditions in order to protect their company from competition and from innovation. They couldn't do it without the political help. That's the part that's essential to this equation. You're always going to have bad people in the world and you're you're always going to have bad people in the free market. Right, but bad people in the free market cannot achieve the sort of things that they're currently achieving without political manipulation. I think we got some super chats, right? We do have super chats. All right. All right. Give me one moment to get here. We have one from Diane. I'm sorry, we've, we're a little backed up. We'll get through it. Um, Diane says, Remember that every finger pointed out, uh, there are three pointing back at you. Stoicism should be learned. Read and study yourself. Accountability and critical thinking are essential to maturing. And some of these uh, comments, we, we had some trouble getting to them. We might should hold some of them because they're relevant to what we talked about earlier sure. in the episode. And so if we haven't gotten to your super chat yet, I apologize. And we'll definitely get to all of them towards the end of the show. Okay, another thing. So as Christian pointed out, a lot of Zoomers, a lot of millennials aren't as concerned about the healthcare side because they're still young. They're still in relatively good health. Not, not only that, they have had no opportunity to experience what kind of stranglehold the government has on the most productive members of society, the business owners, small business owners, and everyone. Well, we also, you need to consider also that they are really trying to make them dependent on the medical system by transing them as kids. But I digress. There's that too. So another, another question, housing, why is housing so expensive? So we, we talked about this before mm-hmm. and, and inflation plays a role in this. So again, remember inflation is not greedy developers that have just decided to raise prices. Every time Elizabeth Warren tells you that this is all because of greed, go back and just think how much money do you make sitting there thinking greedy thoughts on your couch? Zero. You have to actually do something. It can be a motivation. It's not in and of itself an action. And oh, by the way, if developers could just arbitrarily increase the price to whatever they want, whenever they wanted, because they're greedy, why didn't they do it before? Like, why didn't they do it five years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago? Why didn't they? Because they are also subject to the marketplace. Right? It's not like people that build houses can just say, you know what? I'm I'm gonna charge a million dollars for each house. They can only do that if there aren't if there isn't sufficient competition within the marketplace that can can actually force prices down through increased supply. So again, here's one of the questions you have to ask yourself. If there isn't more supply, why is that? Is it because the greedy developers don't want to make more houses to sell you? No, <laughs> right? I'm sorry, I don't mean to be condescending when I say this. It's just so frustrating to me. The, the developer, the builder, the, they want to build more, right? They want to build more apartment complexes. They want to build more houses. They want to alleviate this burden. So the question is, is why aren't they? Well, if you look at places, let's look at urban areas first, because they actually have some challenges that are, that are not as prevalent within rural areas. If you look at a place like New York City, they have things like rent control. And I see this all the time where young people will be like, well, thank God for rent control. We need more rent control. Okay, here's what rent control actually is. It's the government coming in and telling somebody you're not allowed to charge essentially what the market value is of something you own, right? That's what it is on a fundamental level. Now, you, you might want to say, but well, this is about people. This is about, okay, great. 
But the fundamental economic reality is, is that you're telling someone, hey, I know you own this thing and I know somebody would be willing to pay you this much for that thing, but you're no longer not allowed to charge that much, right? That's what it is. So here's my question. Do you think that incentivizes people to build more of those units or does it disincentivize them to build more of those units? The answer is obvious. It disincentivizes them. Why would I build something that the government is then going to come in and tell me I don't get to get fair market value for? If you want to know why so many areas in New York were falling into slums and decay, well, if you tell me that I'm not allowed to get the market value for what I own, but I still have to keep up on all the maintenance, I still have to keep up on all the taxes, I still have to do those other things, well, then I, not only do I not have an incentive to build more, I don't have an incentive to keep up the one I currently have. And this, this manifested itself in a really interesting story in the 1960s. I think it was in Chicago. And it was a, it was a contemporary of Saul Alinsky. It was an attorney who was fighting on behalf of renters' rights. And he went in and he gathered all the renters and they, they were all furious with their, their you know, horrible uh, slumlord and, and they were going to show him and they were going to demand change. And so the landlord shows up with his attorney and before they get started on all their grievances, the landlord's attorney says, you know, Mr. Harrison or whatever his name was, Mr. Harrison would like to know that he's willing to sell the building right now to anybody who wants to buy it for $1. And everybody started cheering except for the attorney for the renters. He was the first one who was like, wait a second, why, why would this guy want to sell an entire apartment building for $1? The only way he would want to do that is if it's a financial nightmare for him. Well, that's what happens. That's what happens when the government intervenes and all of a sudden starts doing things like rent control along with all the other regulations. You may think it's great when the government mandates that a landlord do something or that a landlord keep rent at a certain rate. Or here's another one that happened a lot during COVID and before when they tell a landlord you're not allowed to kick someone out of their house for not paying rent. Well, that landlord still has costs associated with maintaining that property. The landlord might still have a mortgage that they're having to pay. And if you don't pay your rent, he or she can't pay their mortgage. Property taxes. Or property taxes. And so what ends up happening? Building gets dilapidated. They go bankrupt. They lose money. Who would want to build more units under those conditions? But again, why does the politician not get blamed for that? Well, because if, if you're the person that's just fighting to make ends meet, if you're the person that's just fighting to get a, a rent, you're probably not sitting there doing a great deal of research on the overall implications of rent control policies. You're probably not looking at the second and third order effects of every landlord because you're probably assuming, well, if a landlord's got this big property, they're probably doing a whole lot better than I am. And you know what? Maybe they can, they can afford to do a little bit less to help me out. Okay, now times that over the 100 other people in the apartment complex or the 50 other people, or the 25 other people. And then all of a sudden, what do you have within a democratic system? Well, you have 25 people that have been convinced to be really pissed at their landlord instead of being pissed at the representative that created the conditions that they're currently having to contend with. But it's super easy for that politician to ride in on their white horse and be like, if you elect me, I'll force this landlord to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Until the landlord says, I give up, I give up. I don't even want the property anymore. I'm moving. Or I'm just leaving. doesn't renew your leases. Right. Yeah. Like, these are the sort of conditions that are creating this. And, and this isn't just coming from me. I know I'm conservative. I know I'm, you know, liberty leaning the whole deal. There, there was a whole episode. Who was it? Johnny Harris. Yeah. 
Johnny Harris did a whole episode on this that a lot of the affordable housing issues are taking place in areas that are controlled by Democrats who are always talking about affordable housing. And yet, because of green space laws, because of building height regulations, because of everything else, zoning restrictions, zoning restrictions, there's no new housing being built. You want to know why a house goes for a million dollars? Like a a small 1,300 square foot house goes for like a million dollars in Palo Alto? It's not because it's a gorgeous property. It's because Palo Alto will not allow for additional building. And so the only way that you can get into that geographical market is if you're willing to buy whatever piece of crap happens to be sitting on the land right there. And if you bought a home in the 60s or 70s or even 80s, you benefited greatly from prop... 13. I well, it, it's not even prop 13. It's, it's more the, the think of the macro factors. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because Nick, you kind of hinted at this earlier, but I, I really want to dig into this actually a little bit more yesterday. You and I were having a debate over, you know, like generations and who should get the appropriate blame. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's not right to pin the blame on, on people that were in position to take advantage of terrible policies that were enacted at the federal level just because they were in a better position than me. So like, for example, oh, I didn't, you know, shame on me for not choosing to be born at a time when I could have bought a house in 2012 when they were super cheap. Right. But that doesn't mean that I should be mad at somebody who was in a position to buy a house in 2012. Well, I do think that there's a lot of zoomers out there that they're actually not mad at um, developers. Uh There's two groups that they're mad at. They're mad at boomers who bought homes in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when they were very cheap. Remember the, the numbers that I read off earlier, even with 13, almost 14% interest rates, it's, it was actually cheaper to buy a home in 1983 than it is today. So they're mad at boomers who bought these homes in a lot of these places, especially these blue places back in like the 70s. People like my, honestly, people like my aunt who, who bought a house in, um, uh, um, uh, who bought a house in Burbank and I believe it was Burbank. Marina, let me know if I'm wrong on that. I know that she's starting to watch the show now. Um, anyway, she, she bought a house in, in Southern California in LA County in like the 1970s um, for for a relatively cheap price and sold it for for like millions of dollars when she finally retired. It wasn't, she, she wasn't a bad person for doing that though. She made a great investment despite the fact that she actually probably didn't know that it would be such a great investment. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of reasons why that house accumulated in price and it's not her fault that it did. But a lot of Zoomers look at at people like that, right, who bought homes in the 70s or bought homes in the 80s, and they're mad at those people for getting the deal of a lifetime, and now they're selling it for millions of dollars. That's the first group they're mad at. The second group that they're mad at isn't developers, it's landlords. Well, yeah. yeah. And you could say there's some overlap between the boomers and the landlords, but like those are the two groups of people that I think that, that when it comes to the issue of housing, Gen Z are the most upset at. And one of the things that, that you're really trying to get across, and you and I had a long conversation about this yesterday, is your anger is justified to a degree. Your frustration is justified, but it needs to be directed towards the appropriate source. It is not the fault of somebody who was born decades before you that they bought a house in what became a deal of a lifetime. The fault lies at the Federal Reserve. And the fault lies within Congress and within the White House, for that matter. Yeah. And, and that's something that I don't think a lot of Zoomers quite yet understand, is that they're mad at boomers for, for buying cheap houses. They're mad at landlords for raising rent on them. They're, they're mad at, at 
all of these people who who kind of got theirs and they they think that th- that's so unjustified that was so you just got yours because you happened to grow up at a time when interest rates were falling and inflation was really low and you were able to gobble up all the goods and now you have them all and i'm being i, I i'm being raked over the coals here by a generation of people that got theirs and i'm yeah. mad at those people and i understand that frustration i really do understand that frustration but it's it's critical to understand that it wasn't the boomers. It wasn't the landlords that created the housing crisis that we're in. It was the federal government and the federal reserve that created this crisis. And well, that, that's a huge distinction. Well, and, and again, the, the whole reason why we're doing this, and, and some people might look at this and be like, well, this is easy. You just blame the government for everything. Well, no, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm blaming the, I'm, I'm typically blaming the federal government and certain state governments for macro problems because they're usually the only people that can have that a macro influence on that level. Yeah, there's a couple of massive companies out there like Google, like Apple, like Amazon, which can have large scale effect. But even then, you know, Amazon, which is one of the largest employers in the world, has, I think, something like 1.2 million employees. Somebody check me on that one. I forget what it was. Um, It's a lot. Yeah. But, but the, the issue is, is that even with that, okay, 1.5 million, uh, in 2022, the number dropped to 1,541,000. It dropped. Yeah, it dropped <laughs> to that. So massive number of employees. That is nothing compared to what the federal government has as far as employees, as far as uh, rulemaking power, like as, as powerful as you may think Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk is, if Elon Musk showed on my doorstep right there and said, I want you to give me $200. I'd be like, cool, get off my property. But if a 22-year-old IRS agent showed up on my door and said, you owe me $10,000, I'd be nervous. Why? Because machine guns in prison aren't backing up Elon Musk, right? So when I say, yes, the federal government and government in general bears a lot of responsibility for this, it's because of the influence they have on being the only entity that gets to use legal aggressive force and coercion to achieve their objectives. Let's let's look at another one here that I think is really important to both uh, Zoomers and Millennials. We got two more that we're going to do, and then we'll then we'll wrap this up. The student debt crisis, right? The rising tuition rates. So we talked, we showed before how tuition has just grown exponentially. This to me is probably the most offensive of all these categories, and I will tell you why. Because as I look at so much of the bad economics, so much of the bad social policy so much of the bad legal policy, and I trace them back to their source, guess what? It's American higher education. That's where I trace most of these ideas where I'm looking at this going, what is this nonsense? Oh, it's higher ed. So the same people, the same people that are creating so many of these conditions or popularizing so many of these ideologies, which are hurting us economically, socially, et cetera, are the same ones that are complaining about greedy landlords and greedy business owners and greedy corporations. The inflation for college tuition is up 1,200%. When are we going to start talking about the greed of higher education? Because not only were they charging more, but these were the same people that were lobbying the government to hand out college loans to 18-year-olds who had no idea of the actual implications of what they were signing. It was our higher ed system that was telling everybody, well, we are the key. We are your golden ticket to a bright future socially and economically. 
right? We're the key. And oh, by the way, we've lobbied the federal government to give you all this free money to get this education. And then at the same time they were doing this and you had more and more 18 year olds stacking up on federal debt. What did their course material look like? Were they just drastically increasing their engineering programs? No, they were drastically increasing their women's studies programs. In fact, go look at all of the studies programs. And essentially it was grievance, grievance studies. That's what they were drastically increasing at the same time that they were convincing kids to pull out more and more loans. At the same time, they were convincing politicians to then subsidize those loans or provide those loans with taxpayer dollars. And then guess what? The student that was told their entire life that a college education was the key to their economic success, gets a degree in, in gender studies and finds out that they're not going to be able to pay off the $70,000 in college loans they took out. And then what do those same universities do? They go up to that kid and be like, oh my gosh, you, this is so horrible. This is why college tuition should be free. This is, this is, you shouldn't have to pay this. This is, we need to go lobby the government to get free higher education, free college for all the students. So you don't have to endure this. Let me get this straight. The same institutions of higher education who lobbied for these loans using taxpayer funds, uh, in addition to all the direct subsidization they just get from state and federal governments, they lobbied for that. They then completely increased the number of courses that they were offering that were absolutely economically worthless. They gave themselves a bunch of pay increases, salary increases, benefits increases. They got their cut. And then when their students couldn't afford to pay back the loans they took out because the education they received was worthless, they have the audacity to go back and tell those same students that, you know, the real problem here is these greedy taxpayers that don't want to that don't want to subsidize or pay for your loan. Because guess what? You can't forgive government debt. You can't forgive government loans. All you can do is transfer the responsibility for paying those loans onto people that never took out the debt in the first place. So the same institutions of higher education telling all of us that they were the key to economic success and a bright future created a bunch of degrees that were so worthless that the people that got them couldn't even pay the loans. And now they're the ones telling the rest of us we're greedy if we don't want to pay it for them. That is why that is probably one of the single most offensive things to me. And it should be to zoomers, to millennials, to anyone that pays taxes. You were fed a bill of goods. And now instead of looking at the people that fed you that bill of goods and saying, the hell is wrong with you? You're pointing at the taxpayers and joining in and, and condemning them as being greedy for not wanting to pay off those college loans? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. This is one area where, again, I will not only, I, I have done my fair share of dunking on this idea because it's ridiculous and absurd and quite frankly, greedy as hell. But this is my this is my attempt to, to try and explain why I understand why you're mad. I understand why you're pissed. But can we please direct that ire at the people that created, deliberately created these conditions because it was beneficial for them. They were arguing for their future economic and social success, not yours. That's the only thing that explains some of these professors even being employed 
long term. Oh yeah. Like some of them, it's it's like, what is your function? What do you even do that has any net benefit to society besides churning out activists at great expense to the taxpayer? Um, and, and to themselves, you know, it's almost a bait and switch. They, they bait these kids into going and, and getting, oh, you're going to go get a degree and then you can go and make a lot of money later on and be valuable in the workplace. And then they switch it and they turn you into an activist and, and turn you on the very people that you should actually be trying to emulate half the time. Yeah. Because again, it would be, it would have been better had higher education taken all this money, put it into, put it into a, a big pile and set it on fire, right? At least we could have roasted marshmallows on that, right? Like if they would have just done that. But no, instead, they created something so much worse. They created the very activists that they then sent back into the world to try to justify them getting paid directly yeah. for more college education. Like what a self-serving like grift. There's, It's kind of, you know, there's been a lot of grifting going on anyway. I mean, I, I look at some of these degree plans and- there are certain degrees where it makes zero sense why certain degrees need to have calculus as a mandatory thing. Or yeah. there's certain classes that are mandatory for your general education to, you know, go into this field. Why? It'd be a why? positive thing if calculus was the thing they're mandating. No, now no. they're mandating <laughs> okay, but they woke are. DEI nonsense in universities. That's what they're but mandating. I, I'm going even further back. There are I look at this and I go, there is so much waste. Wasted time, wasted energy, and wasted professors on on kids that are never, ever going to use half of what they're learning there. They just have to check off the box so they can say they have a degree so that they can be valuable in the workplace. And then, oh, by the way, half the classes you paid for, you'll never even use. You were just, you were a useful tool to employ a professor who has no function. I have a question. Why are we funding our opposition? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> believe, believe me, as as the as the subcommittee chairman for higher education, there, there's two committees that affect higher ed in Virginia, the the uh, education committee and the appropriations committee, right? Because the education committee sets policy. Now, again, we have a House committee and a and a Senate committee, so you can imagine a lot of the bills that left my committee didn't survive the Senate. The only good thing I can say is that a lot of the Senate bills didn't survive my committee, right? But on the same side, of, on the on the funding component, one of my biggest questions is: Can anyone can anyone please explain to me why we repeatedly go back? and insist on robbing our constituents to give it to institutions of higher education, some of which, there's one institution of higher education in Virginia sitting on a $15 billion endowment. But no, 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 they need my constituents' tax dollars so that they can hire more DEI employees. Like, forget it, I'm done. I'm absolutely done. You wanna prove your value to the, to society? Then you better start doing it by by actually enticing people to come to your university and get a degree because that degree is going to turn into actual social and economic, you know, capability in, instead of just more activists within the HR department. And, and look, to be fair, I won't paint with so broad a brush that I don't understand that there's still value within various departments within higher education. My overall argument is, is that the cost benefit analysis ain't adding up anymore. It just nope. isn't. We're paying the consequences of raising multiple generations who have gone through what is effectively a form of neo-Marxist indoctrination. Yeah. James Lindsay actually calls it American Maoism, and he's not entirely wrong. And I mean, we just saw a glimpse of this three weeks ago, right after Hamas killed 1,200 innocent people. 
shot them up at a rave on the on the border with Gaza and then went into cities and just butchered people in their homes and then broadcasted it on the internet for everybody to see is as clear of an act of genocide as as you could possibly go out there and find on the internet. Yeah. And we had people at the University of Virginia 50 45 minutes away from here going out there saying Israel is entirely at fault for this. We stand like, like like people going out there going all the way up to the line of saying we stand with Hamas yeah. at a it, university at a taxpayer funded university. So then I ask myself, these universities are churning out, not just, they're not just churning out people that have bad ideas. They're churning out people who want to hurt us, mm-hmm. who want to take political power and then use that political power to hurt people like us at this table or hurt people like you who's listening to this podcast right now. And so I I ask, why are we funding our opposition? When have the left ever taken political power and then used that political power to funnel money to their ideological opposition? Have they ever done that? How much money have they sent to NAGR? How much money have they sent to any pro-life organization out there? They haven't sent a dime to any ideological opponent of theirs. And yet we send billions of dollars across all 50 states, Republicans do, to fund a, a an institution that has been completely taken over through Gramsci's marks through the institutions. It, we are funding, we've talked about the Leviathan in the cathedral before. We're funding the Leviathan. Yeah. We're funding the cathedral. And then we wonder why it's, it's producing generations of people who hate us. And then they go into the real world and then they push policies that are going to result in, like I've said before, the zombie apocalypse. So, so sorry for the rant there, but like at some point, People on the right, and you're seeing it increasingly. People on the right are, are, are waking up to this, and and they're getting mad. And, and I'm not I'm not attacking you on this, Nick, because I know no, no, you're I actually it, yeah. with us. But like, they're getting mad at, at Republican office holders that don't seem to realize that like they don't know what time it is. Yeah. They still think that we're like living in the 1990s where it's like, we just all need to get together and sing Kumbaya. No, we're, we're using taxpayer money funded by conservatives to indoctrinate a generation of people who hate them and want to inflict physical pain on them. And then we're wondering why we're living in the clown world that we're living in because we're subsidizing the indoctrination of people who are, who are perpetuating clown world on us. The only thing I want to say about this is that I think the problem is actually going to get fixed maybe faster than we think because it's human nature that no one wants to participate in an activity or invest in a project when the payoff is not certain. Mm-hmm. For yeah. years, the payoff, well, our parents have told us, go to college, get a job, buy a house, have a family, and then it all works out. But I think one of the things that Gen Z is very frustrated about is that the American dream for them is not as tangible as it was for generations that came before them. So all we need is a couple of years of people that are Christianized age saying, hey, college is good for some people, but it is not the end-all, be-all. You do not get the diploma, and, and you right after that, be experienced enough to hold a full-time job and get paid a full salary. And we need parents who have kids that are about to go to college to sit down and actually have a good conversation with them about this. Because the other thing, too, is we've encouraged so many kids to go to college without them knowing what they want to do in their life. And for a while, I think that was okay, but we can't just be sending students to college and say, use the first two years to figure out what you want to be doing long term. I think the first two years that people are going to college, they need to be taking classes within their major so that they actually know whether or not they want to be doing that. I I think we're, and and this is going to, this is going to kind of go into this, this kind of sum up part, but 
let me let me get to one other thing, and then we're we're gonna go into that because there, there's two other things that I see a lot of. One one of these things is is a large emotional argument that I see all the times with respect to the economy, and it's this idea that, you know, how can we pay our our teachers and our, our mental health workers so little while athletes are getting paid so much. This is just evidence of, of the fails of, of capitalism. There's two things I want to point out right there. If you're going to use something like that as an, an, an evidence of the fail of capitalism, then you're going to have to explain why things are so much worse in communist and socialist countries. Because this, I, I'm sorry, I don't know of anybody that is, is flying to socialist or communist countries in order to get a, a quality education or health care or whatever else. The other thing that we need to understand about how the economy works within a free market, and the reason why I always tell people that before you even get to the economic efficiency of a free market, you have to get to the morality of a free market. And that seems like just a off-the-wall argument for a, a lot of students that I talk to. And the reason why I say it's, it's a morally superior system is not because everything's perfect. Any system comprised of human beings will not be perfect. There will be people that make bad decisions or do bad things. But the reason why a free market is morally superior to the socialist one, before you ever get to the efficiency or effectiveness, is because within a free market, you can't compel me to do business with you. Within a socialist economy, you can. You do. You control them. The government controls the means of production. Right. So I'm sorry, it's, it doesn't produce better results. The only reason why certain people get paid more in a free market economy is because individual consumers, customers who have control over their own labor, over their own money, over their own choices, have decided to pay one person to provide a good or service more than they've decided to pay somebody else. Right. The, the reason why an, a pro athlete makes so much money <clears throat> is not because the government decided to allocate them more money. It's not because rich, greedy individuals decided to pay them more money. It's because millions upon millions of people want to see them play the game because watching the game gives them some entertainment value within their life. It provides maybe some escape or it provides memories that they build with their kids or their family on watching the game. And there's very, very, very few people that can do it. So once again, what is it? Supply and demand. Supply and demand. If you want to make more money in the economy, then you develop capabilities with high demand and low supply. Yep. That's how you make money. High demand and low supply. People have this idea, well, I was told that if I worked hard, can I just tell you right now, it usually requires hard work to develop those capabilities and then to effectively market them in order to make a lot of money. It usually requires a lot of hard work, but it's not the hard work that actually produces the income. It's not the hard work that produces the wealth. It's the demand and how good a job you do. It's, yep. By all means, can I tell you something right now? If you can figure out a way to make a, a lot of money honestly, right, with, with people that can voluntarily choose not to do business with you, if you can figure out an easy way to do that, do it, right? Find a more effective and efficient way. But, but don't let anybody fool you into this idea that, well, if you, if you work, somebody digging ditches for, I, yeah, I know it's hard work. It might be backbreaking work, but is it cost effective? Is, is the overall end product of what is produced so valuable that it's going to command more money within the marketplace? If the answer is no, don't be surprised by that. Don't think that there's something immoral or wrong happening. Allow free people to choose what they want to spend their own money on within a free market. And then we end up finding out what jobs have the most value to the most people and then develop skills and capabilities within that if that's your goal. But at the same time, also recognize that you do want to balance your family life. You do want to balance other things that you want to do with your life. And that may mean that you go into a job that gives you a great deal of meaning and purpose 
and that you really enjoy and love. But if it doesn't pay as much, that doesn't mean that somebody else was bad or evil. It doesn't mean that somebody else made a bad decision. You made choices based off of what you valued. And if you valued more leisure time, or if you valued working in an environment where there's higher supply and less demand, you're going to make less money. And there's, I'm sorry, that that's not, that's not, a, a, I mean, it doesn't mean something's broken within the system. Nick, I want to help you transition into the summary by asking this question that was proposed by Sam Jacobs. He said, but Nick, how do we change this? Yes, it appears we all agree with what you're saying here. However, however do you, how do you get the masses to change? How do Americans force change? So the, the force part is problematic, right? So a part of this, a part, like I'm, let's take the political side, which is actually my least favorite way to address this problem, okay? But it's still an important way. You, you can't elect people that are constantly trying to use government force in order to get what they want, Right. And that goes for either direction. I don't want to vote. I don't want to vote for a bunch of people on the right that are then going to use government force to get what they want because they won't always control the power and they also make mistakes. And, and part of the reason why we did this whole episode is because we are trying to talk to Gen Z's and millennials who have legitimate grievances, but many of which are assigning blame in the inappropriate place. And I will tell you this, if you think it can't get worse, wait until somebody misdiagnoses the problem and then offers a cure. Because the cure will kill you faster than the current, faster than disease if it's the inappropriate one. So part of this is just equipping people with the knowledge to say, okay, yeah, I was mad about housing prices, but I can see how this might be more the effect of my local city council or board of supervisors than it is my landlord. Yeah, I'm mad about tuition, but you know what? Yeah, you're right. Maybe it would be, maybe it would be better for me to focus on capabilities which are, which are marketable as opposed to just having a credential from a university that says that I spent four years learning a bunch of stuff that I'm not going to use. Right, So the knowledge transfer component of this is really important for people that are actually open to hearing a different way of thinking about these things. And that's what this whole episode was about. It's about understanding where the anger or frustration is justified and then actually properly diagnosing the source of the problem, which has got people mad so that we can then offer solutions that work. And again, step one from the political realm is don't elect people that are perpetuating the very problems that you're mad about. Right, elect people that are actually going to allow for stronger property rights that are not going to constantly take your money, that are not going to force you into all these good ideas that you might not think are good ideas because they've decided what's best for you. Right, vote for people that are actually going to value your individual liberty along with your personal responsibility and allow you to be the beneficiaries of your good decisions and to learn from your bad ones instead of punishing you from your good decisions with higher taxes and more regulations so they can coddle you in your bad decisions by giving you more money for not doing anything. Like that's key. Now, the, the other part that is, is so much more important. And this goes into the final thing. What can we all do about this? So I've already talked about what you can do on the political side. Here's what I would tell Gen Z, millennials, the whole deal, because I think there's a lot of things you've been lied to about. First of all, yes, you, you want to graduate high school, but the way that I would encourage you to look at your education is not so much about credentials. Oh, here's my diploma. Oh, here's my college degree. Start focusing on actual credentials, which convey value to you and in the marketplace. This whole idea of follow your dreams. Look, I think dreams are a fine thing. I definitely think you should develop capabilities that put you in a position to be able to realize your dreams. But you got to eat, right? It's nobody else's obligation to feed you. Just like it's not your obligation to feed somebody else. 
until you get married or have kids or whatnot. So the idea is focus on the capabilities that you have. And as you look at the marketplace and you look at supply and demand, start looking at what am I, what are you good at? What do you like to do? What do you get enjoyment out of? And which of those things is marketable and start focusing on developing an education plan for yourself and an experience plan for yourself that allows you to develop those capabilities. For some people, it might be that you need a college degree. Unfortunately, there's a lot of things you need a college degree for, not because it's necessary necessarily necessary, but because the government says it's necessary and that's problematic. That's where the political part comes in, but look at that thing and then really laser focus on which institutions are honestly going to set you up for success within your desired field. Don't just look at any college being the same as another one. Start looking for ones that are going to minimize the amount of expense associated taking BS classes that you don't need and look at the universities, which actually value your time and only insist that you take the classes, which are necessary for your desired field. Some other things too, um, when, it, when it comes to developing interpersonal skills, I cannot emphasize this enough. I, I have gotten jobs before, not because I was the most infinitely qualified person, but because I took the time to understand what was the need of the company that I was going to work for? What was the need of that position and how could I best fill it? A lot of times there's this, there's this attitude right now that companies owe me a job or owe me a livable wage or owe me that. I'm just going to be honest up front. They don't owe you crap just like you don't owe them crap until you enter into a mutually agreed upon contract. And then they have obligations and you have obligations and those should be written out in that contract. But the thing is, is that if you really want that job and you really want to become invaluable to a company, then you do have to focus on what are that company's needs? What are they trying to achieve and how do you best fulfill it? By the same token, if you're an entrepreneur, you're, you're going to come face to face with this really quick. You want to hire people to be able to perform tasks, right? The, the, the opportunity that you've created, the business that you've created doesn't exist to provide people with jobs. The jobs are a byproduct of being able to achieve more through cooperation with your, with laborers, right? And that's a mutually beneficial existence because if that person thought they could get more money doing something else, then they would, or they should at least try. But if they can't, we need to expel this rumor that your boss is exploiting your labor it, okay, great. Well, then go somewhere where they're not exploiting your labor. And if you find out that there's no such place, then it could be that you just need to develop more school skills in order to make your labor more valuable. And, and if you are in the entrepreneurial position or if you are in the position of, of being an employer, obviously you're also trying to foster a culture which is going to make your business work. And then finally, here's the other thing that, that I, would, I would say. And, and I'm sorry, the, the whole to close that off with the interpersonal skills. Learning how to effectively understand what you believe, learning what you believe, um, learning what an employer needs or what your business needs, and then being able to effectively convey that either through your actions and your labor, through your work, but also through the way that you correspond with people, the way that you talk to people. Um, I, I cannot tell you how many opportunities will open up to you purely because of your interpersonal skills, because there's, there's so many tasks. There's so many um, jobs that can be trained. It, and it's almost impossible. If, if somebody doesn't have good interpersonal skills, it's almost impossible to train them within that job. But if you do, if you do develop that, and that's something that you can do without a college degree, it's something you can do w without a lot of training. If you can develop that, you will become more and more invaluable because you can learn the other skills. And then finally, here's the other thing that I would tell you to do. You need to completely ditch the way that culture 
You need to completely ditch what current culture has told you about dating, marriage, and hookup culture. Hookup culture is toxic for both men and women. I, I, I said this is one of the things that just really infuriates me about the manosphere is this idea that, well, women should be pure, but men got to go out there and sow their wild oats. Nope, they both should be because it's actually beneficial when they both are. It, it's beneficial emotionally. It's beneficial spiritually. It's beneficial intellectually, and it's beneficial within the context of a relationship. So this idea that the rules are different for men and women, no, the consequences affect men and women differently. That doesn't mean there's no consequences for men for going out and doing this. Not the least of which is it could not be any dumber for a man to say, well, I think, I think, I think women should be pure, but then I'm going to go out and I'm going to create the very conditions within women that I don't want to marry. It's a little bit intellectually dishonest by the same token for women you really got to take a hard look at what you value with respect to a potential spouse. Okay. It, 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 there's, there's plenty of guys out there that might, you know, might be physically appealing, might uh, have that bad boy thing that you're looking for or whatnot. But the question that you should be asking yourself is, is this actually a good man? Because I will tell you this much, if you're going, if you want to get married and you're putting off marriage and you're putting off having kids and you're putting off all this stuff until you're finished with your career, because we got fertility treatments nowadays, go take a look at what happens with respect to birth deformities and abnormalities. Once you hit 35 and beyond. Yeah, they may be able to, they may be able to pump you full up for all sorts of things to get you pregnant. And, and look, and I, and I don't want in any way to diminish the value of a child that has a birth defect or a deformity. Right? That's not the intention here. But this idea that women have all the time in the world to have kids. No, you don't. Every egg that you ever possess was there at conception, right? Like all that DNA was there, not at conception. All that DNA was there. All that was there. When you're in the womb, you have all the eggs you're ever going to have. And I will tell you this, a 21 year old egg reacts differently with respect to pregnancy than a 45 year old one. And that's not me being mean. That's just the reality that so many people are not willing to tell women nowadays. And they're finding themselves later on in life, wondering what the heck happened. You were lied to. That's what it is. You were lied to. The other thing I want people to understand, I'm not telling you to get married young. I think you should get married when it makes sense for you, but I will tell you this. I can't imagine putting off being married to Tina because I, I want to do achieve certain occupational things first. Now, there may be times where that's appropriate. I don't know. I'm not passing judgment, but I will say this. Our marriage made me, as a, as a husband, far more focused. And I hope Tina got benefits out of her marriage as well at a young age. But it's that whole idea of conquering things together. Like this idea that I'm going to conquer all these things and then I'll get married. I got a lot of benefit out of conquering those things together with my wife. There was things that I would have done very differently and worse off had Tina not been there. So this idea that you have to accomplish a bunch of things before you get married, don't buy into that narrative. Don't buy into that narrative. I know a lot of people want to get married and they feel like no one's out there, but I'm just telling you, um, getting married young has, has incredible value, a uh, value if it's the right person. Right. If it's the wrong person, it, it can have a lot of it can have a lot if of. If your own well. priorities are in order, if yeah, if your own priorities are in order, but th those are just some things I would tell you: is develop for capability. Don't don't just look at credentials, especially the credentials the popular culture tells you are important. Learn the interpersonal skills. Develop a certain degree of stoicism, which says that even if you are victimized, you're going to get value in your life from overcoming victimization. You're going to get value in your life for overcoming challenges or disadvantages. You're not going to wallow in the victimization challenges or disadvantages because regardless of whether it's just or unjust, I can tell you this much. I don't know a single happy person that has actually wrapped their entire identity in bad things that happened to them. 
I know a lot of incredibly successful people that have overcome just horrible challenges, horrible disadvantages. And if you're the sort of person that puts your mindset on focusing on how do I overcome rather than making it a core component of your identity, the thing that happened to you, I'm telling you, you're going to be so much more happy and equipped in life professionally, personally, and relationally. All right. So that's, that's my little soapbox rant about well, that. Nick, I think we're going to get to, Nick, I think before, we're going to get to all the super chats and questions. Before you finish your soapbox rant, I want you to continue for just a second. Okay. Uh, we've got a super chat here that I want to use to finish off the episode before we get to the rest of the super chats. And this one's from Zelfin. He says, as a person in Gen Z, I'm scared to go into the world today as an adult. What's the greatest piece of advice you can give me financially, relationally, and spiritually? I don't know how to adult. Do you mind if I say a few things to this first? Sure. Financially, I would say, you know, one of the greatest pieces of advice I was given growing up that stuck with me for some reason, and it kind of plays off with what Nick said earlier, is thinking problems and solutions. And I think that that has been incredibly valuable for me. And the second thing to that is going on off can you explain can you just explain what that means real quick problems and solutions if you're in an industry if you have an interest in a particular career path figure out as early as possible what are the problems that need to be solved within um, this you know career field what problem does your potential boss have that you can solve and then the second thing to that is don't be afraid to work hard without getting paid first And what I mean by that, like, especially with me being a video editor, there has been hours and hours and hours and hours I've spent producing content and refining my skills so that at one point that level of skill would pay me back where, you know, I was never in a position where I expected someone to pay me if I was going to work. I put in the work first and then was paid well because of that investment that I had made. I feel like a lot of young people are you know, of the opinion that, you know, I'm not going to work or suffer unless I'm getting paid for it. And I think that's a terrible position to put yourself in. Um, and, and I'll let you take it from here, Nick. Well, yeah, I think, I think on the financial side, again, ma- making yourself capable is important. Just like your employer doesn't have a right to expect work out of you without pay that you've agreed to, you don't have a right to expect pay out of your employer that your employer hasn't agreed to. And I think sometimes that gets that gets lost in translation. The, the, the employer is someone that has built up something and, and now has opportunities which you can take advantage of. So you these people that say, oh, they're, they're taking advantage of my labor. Okay, well, you're taking advantage of the opportunities that they're providing by going and working for them. And you know that because if you could get more working for yourself, you would. So I, I would say from a financial standpoint, you know, obviously just try to develop good, um, you know, marketable skills marketable skills. And like Hamilton said, work ethic goes such a long way in that. I, I, I can't right. emphasize that enough. And then from a financial perspective, um, you know, o- avoiding <laughs> so many people have an expectation for what their life should look like, especially at an early age. Um, spending a lot of money on stuff that you don't really need early on, especially when you can kind of like suck it up and endure, um, it, it is going to serve you really well. Um, don't be don't be blowing money on flashy things. Don't be blowing money on stuff that you you just don't really need. There's pride to be had with money in the bank. Yeah, it it just it gives you it gives you a great deal of freedom. It gives you a great deal of security. Like I'm not someone that tells you to go in no debt whatsoever. I think sometimes it can be appropriate, but I think you should definitely limit it as much as you possibly can and and focus on 
having having resources available so that when opportunities, genuine opportunities strike, you have the ability to react to them. And that's something I wish I would have done a whole lot better job of when, when I was younger. I really do. Um, it, it could have really made the difference in certain certain situations. When it comes to um, Rel- the, relationships. Relationships. Hang on, was, on the financial one, you left out the yeah. most important thing. What? Buy gold and Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Buy freedom gold. Um, so w- when it comes to relationships, and this actually goes under the spiritual as well. Um, whenever I talk about this, there's inevitably people that are upset with the, upset with me about it, and and I'll just, I'll just tell you what I tell them. Um, I can share with you my experiences. I can share with you the worldview, but I'm not going to share you the worldview without the author of it. Um, and so I'm a Christian. My faith is absolutely critical to everything I do and I believe. And I, I can't tell you the enormous benefits that I've had from organizing my life around a, a consistent and, and comprehensive worldview that has something to say about things like relationships. When when Tina and I were considering getting married, and this was at like 18, we sat down there and talked about the things that we had as expectations. We talked about the things that we wanted to do, what our dreams were, what our goals were, how many kids we wanted to have, what we thought about, you know, pets. I mean, we talked about all of it. And here's what I can tell you. Everything about those expectations changed or modified at some point. So why did we stay together? Well, because the fundamentals were the same. The, the fundamental worldview was the same. And so when we made that commitment to one another, we understood that this was for life. And so things would, you know, the essentials had to be secure. And then everything else can can change or modify or whatnot. Just have a conversation, a good communication. But I will tell you this. If, if you look at things like dating as nothing more than a way to go out and, and have fun with other people, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I think it's going to set you up for failure in marriage. If you look at if you look at the romantic relationships that you're going to have and you are first and foremost asking the question, is this someone that shares the same values I do? Before you ever get to life goals or occupation or thing, is this someone that shares the same values that I do? You have to ask that question first. Because if you share the same values and you're both committed to them and you're committed to this objective standard, well, then it becomes easy to modify the other things. It becomes easy to address challenges uh, with one another. So look at that first with respect to your relationships. And then when it comes to friendships, because I'm not going to assume you only mean romantic relationships, the thing that I would just say there is surround yourself with the sort of people that once again share values. And that doesn't mean you can't expose yourself to other ideas or whatnot. But when you're surrounding yourself with people that they want the best for you and you want the best for them, and that doesn't mean just achieving a particular goal, it means they want you to be the best person you can be and you want them to be the best person they can be. That's the sort of person that will cheer with you in your success. That's the sort of person that will empathize and sympathize with you when you're down. And it's also the person, this is probably one of the most important things. That's the person that will also hold you accountable when you most need it. So I would say on the, on the financial, the spiritual, the emotional or the um, relational, those are all really critical, but here's the thing, the other, and I'll, I'll end it with this. The spiritual, I think, is the most important because if you if you have that comprehensive worldview that you feel confident in who you are and that you have meaning and purpose within this life, the biggest problem that we see going on within our society right now at a national level and at a personal level is identity crisis. It's people not knowing from one day to the next what they are, who they are, what their purpose is, or what they're supposed to be. And they're the ones that, that I, I think feel a lot of fear in this world. I can tell you this. I feel frustration. I don't feel fear. Um, I, I will feel anger sometimes. 
Um, but I don't wonder who I am and I don't wonder what my purpose is. Um, and so I think if you can answer that question, it'll go a long way in overcoming difficult challenges. And, and never forget this. The way that you get out of bad times is when strong people, good people, rise to the challenge during those times. If that doesn't happen, the good times never return. And quite frankly, we don't deserve them. All right. We have quite a few super chats here. If we can keep the responses to 60, stack, 60 seconds, we'll be done with this. All righty. 60 of second how responses. About, how about one word answers only? No. <laughs> oh, right, no, we can't go. be doing that. Actually, you can you time me. Time me. What do you want? 30 seconds? 60 seconds? Uh, 30 seconds. 30 second time. All right. Tina's telling me I got to answer these questions with 30 Tina, seconds. Tina, if it's a $20 super chat, 60 seconds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, the, there's the capitalism. <laughs> All right. This one's from 11 Bravo. He says, solution to fixing the culture. Every child whose birth parents are both married and cohabitating should result in a 33% cut in the household income tax. Once again, I love the name 11 Bravo Crunchy. It's awesome. Um, look, I, I think we should cut everybody's taxes as much Absolutely. as is humanly possible. The one thing I will say is that I'm actually a little bit skeptical of the government trying to uh, manipulate and create perverse incentives. For instance, I don't want people to get married and have kids just because they think that there's a financial benefit from avoiding taxes. I want them to do it because they think it's the right yeah. course of action. And so I, I get the sentiment. I'm just always, always dubious and always skeptical of the government trying to manipulate it. This one's from Look at that 27 seconds. Bam. Way to Hot go, day. babe. This one's from Christian Burton. He says, I believe we're seeing the evolution of society as a whole. Craving and glorifying convenience and selfishness, sacrifice and servitude is fleeting. I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I think part of it is because we we have a culture that has taught them that convenience and selfishness um, is is a form of empowerment. Like when all of the emphasis is put on you and your value and your needs and your wants, and then you're told that that's the actual moral paradigm, that's what you're supposed to look up to is is the greatest thing. I think that's really problematic, and so I, I think you're right on that. I think the the antidote for that is when people actually realize that they get a lot of value in serving others. Yeah. A good convenience, though, is having good ranchers ship meat to your door. <laughs> uh, this super chat is from Isaac. He says, I wonder how long it will be before the lazier among young people begin to pass laws against ageism as an excuse in the workplace for being lazy? I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question, Isaac. One of the things that I, I always try to emphasize to people is that when you give more power to the government, you give the power to whoever actually holds the reins. And they're not always going to interpret the laws or interpret the rules the way you thought that they would. And so anything that you're doing there to give yourself an advantage at someone else can always be later turned against you. And too few people realize that, which is why we have so many people that run to the government in order to try to get solutions for their problems. When in reality, government should actually be kind of staying back and letting free people to work together in voluntary cooperation rather than coercion. This one is from Diane. We already read, we, that we already read it, but we didn't get a chance to respond to okay. it. So I'll read a little bit. Remember that for every finger pointed out, there are three pointing back at you. Stoicism should be learned, ready, and study yourself. Accountability and critical thinking are essential to maturing. Somebody said, that's why I always use knife hand. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the old sergeant major trick right there yeah. that way no fingers are pointing back no it's a really good point the stoicism is i think making a comeback a lot of, especially in a lot of some of the manosphere channels and things like that and, and it is a, a, a very interesting philosophy and outlook on the world it's sometimes being misinterpreted by the toxic masculinity crowd i think the critical theory uh critical thinking and accountability is so important. Um, it is one thing to tell people like, you know, you go girl, right? But it, what happens to the accountability for one's own actions? Accepting accountability for one's own actions is actually empowering because what it suggests is that you have some control over your life and your circumstances. And that is a huge antidote to the people that are telling, well, you don't have any control. Well, if you don't, who does? 
And if it's the system, well, then why are those the same people advocating for a larger system that they control? So yeah, when you can think critically, take accountability and personal responsibility for your actions, that's the hallmarks of being an adult, right? Not a child. And it's amazing how many people want to infantilize people forever. Uh, can I say something real quick? Absolutely. Somebody said, Nick has another chat. And just to let folks know, we are streaming on multiple platforms, which is why there are multiple uh, chats. And we have actually two YouTube pages, one channels. One yeah. is Making the Argument. One is Nick Freitas. So go check yep. out Making the Argument if you're not already there. on Rumble as well. This super chat is from Ellen. She says, I agree with Tina. Definitely some social experimenting going on. The ideas didn't start with the kids. It started with the adults. Why is my question? So Ellen, we've actually done a, a lot of um, a lot of episodes dedicated to things like critical theory, the Frankfurt School, postmodernism, the March through the institutions. And, and I think what we could say is this. Um, this. I don't think it's so much social experimentation as much as it is people trying to achieve a particular end state. And that end state, that worldview is rooted in critical theory and ultimately Marxism. I think James Lindsay has done a lot of work on this. It's fascinating now when you talk about Marxism, people are like, oh, that the communist boogeyman for everything. Okay, well, they're pretty open and blunt about what they actually want to achieve. And again, when you look at critical race theory, when you look at queer theory, when you look at a lot of these, these other you know, ideologies which have become so prominent lately, they are rooted in critical theory, which is largely rooted in, in Marxist um, understanding of the world as well as postmodernism. And so this has been part of their educational doctrine in order to achieve an end state. Ooh, just under 60 seconds. That was 56 seconds. Oh, okay. All right. Another one from Ellen. Also, the government is in the business of administering education. There are more administrators than actual teachers, especially in higher education. It's it's incredible the the amount of administrative staff both within higher education and within uh, just the public school system right now, and that's increased exponentially. Here's one of the uh, possible explanations for that. Some people will say it's well, well, it's because we need more mental health professionals. It's because we need more specialists. It's because we need more people to deal with learning disabilities, which is all interesting because these things seem to have increased exponentially, even though spending has gone up. I think the other thing too to keep in mind here is that when you're looking at teacher union power, they don't always do better when you just hire, when you, when you increase the pay of existing teachers, they do better, better when you actually increase more people paying dues. And so there has been a big push to do these things, but I think it's also a role of the government attempting, or maybe not even attempting, but, um, well, no, I think it is. They're attempting to replace family responsibilities with government responsibilities. And they see the school system as a chief way to do that. If they're going to hire more people, they should hire people to keep the curriculum on up to date. Uh, this one is from Sir Grog. He says, I keep seeing forecasts for the economy to be tanking worse than ever before next year. What's everyone's thoughts on this? I, I think whenever we get into the timelines with respect to when it's going to tank or when it's going to get really bad, that gets very problematic because there's so many factors that, are, that affect it, especially within a, a very global economy. However, as we've discussed before on issues with respect to inflation, um, the bottom line is we can't continue to spend. We can't continue to inflate the economy. We can't continue to punish um, entrepreneurship and, and business the way that we have without facing some pretty real consequences, not to mention the fact that within a heavily globalized market, there's a variety of factors that can impact your economy. And so ultimately, I, I can't put a, a date on it. Maybe Christian. Uh, I'm reminded of, of the quote from Bismarck about how, you know, the, the great war is coming. Yeah. I can't tell you when. But I can tell you where. And then he went on to say yeah. some damn foolish thing of the Balkans. And he was totally right, of course. Yeah. But the, the reason I bring up that quote is because predicting the future with such precision when it comes to timing. Well, if, if I could do that, I'd be filthy rich right now. Yeah. 
I can tell you what will happen. I can't necessarily tell you when it will happen. And we've done whole podcasts on this before. I, I, I will I will say this, without a significant change educationally and, and definitely politically from a policy perspective, both on monetary and fiscal policy, yeah, you, you are going to reach a point where you would hit like a sovereign debt crisis and, and that becomes critical. This one is from Trazen. He says, finally got to one of the streams. Love y'all. Keep up the great show. Uh, Look, keep up the great show. Love y'all. This show is so informative. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Trey, and I appreciate it. That's why we do it. This one's from Boy Staney. The whole reason my wife re-enlisted for six more years in the National Guard was to keep our health insurance super low. I think a lot of people are actually staying within professions that they'd actually prefer to leave uh, or they might want to go somewhere else. But the compensation package or the benefits package is what's keeping them there. It's one of the reasons why we've we've argued for more private insurance and for people as individual citizens to be able to group together and, and compete for insurance. Unfortunately, the government has restrictions on individuals being able to do that, but they allow businesses to do it. So once again, there's an there's an interference into the marketplace, which is giving one industry or a series of industries an advantage over individuals being able to make their own decisions, whether individually or corporately. And it, it, it leads to things like this, where people stay in jobs that they'd rather leave because they don't know how they're going to be able to afford something if they leave. This one's from Marcus. I'm not sure what some of these abbreviations are, so help me out here. It is due to the government required certifications for professionals. CPAs were two years, now a master's. DE is two-year degree, and KS slash MO is a master's and can't cross state lines in professional dues. City, state, and federal codes are your life. Marcus has 100% spot on, excellent comment. This is true. The government works with higher education in order to give higher education special authority when it comes to credentialing Right. And then through licensure and everything else, they control that process. And then if you don't have proper agreements across state lines, you may be credentialed to work in one place. That doesn't mean you are to another. Now, here's the horrible part. Every time we try to reduce these requirements and allow for more free market solutions to it, the very industries, the people that have already completed these tasks, they're the ones that show up in force to protect the licensure or the credentialing requirements because the attitude is in part, well, we went through it. Why shouldn't they have to go through it? The other thing that it does is it creates barrier to entry within the marketplace. So you have higher education financially benefiting, you have established industry benefiting, and you have the politicians benefiting because they're getting uh, donations from these various industries in order to keep these rules in place. So you are absolutely spot on. It is a huge problem. I think it's immoral and it has to get to a point where it's so bad that people are willing to revolt. And one of the ways they're going to revolt is not necessarily voting. They're just going to start providing goods and services without the government's dang permission. And quite frankly, I'm loving it. Heck yeah. All right. This one's from MT. He says, Hey Nick, I was born and raised in Montana. Is it wrong for me to be frustrated and annoyed of the out of staters, mainly Californians coming in and running our housing and renting market? Nope. nope. Totally reasonable. <laughs> I will say that I've said this before and I'll say it again because I'm originally from California. There's two types of people that leave states um, because they think the policies are bad. Locusts and refugees. Refugees are the sort of people that realize that their state is being managed horribly and then flee to a state that is being managed well and then fight like hell to ensure that that state doesn't become like the place that they left. Refugees are some of your greatest allies in protecting the culture and the good policies of your state. Locusts, on the other hand, are the sort of people that destroy the prosperity in an area, move to another area, destroy it again, then move again, and never quite figure out that maybe it's the policies that they brought with them that are creating all the devastation. And the locusts always think they're refugees. 
<laughs> this one's from Banda828. For it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They need them to be victims after filling their heads with that garbage. Otherwise, they won't become their soldiers. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. I, I don't know what else to add with that. That was that was beautifully said. Um, they they are the, the more angry. We see this a lot within the feminist movement. You, you notice how feminists don't get mad when strong, independent women decide to get married and have children. Why not? Isn't that them just exercising the power over their own decisions in order to live the life the way they want? The reason why they get mad is because if you're not bitter, lonely, and upset, you're a pretty poor activist in many of these situations. Not in all, but in many of them. This one's from Baked Turkeys. We love to bake turkeys. Most of the ideology that has infested higher education is the Frankfurt School of Neo-Marxist Sociology, Economics, and Philosophy. Absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. And as much as I remember once I said something about cultural Marxism, and like, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. Then yeah. why did all the cultural Marxists write books on how beneficial cultural Marxism was? Like, like this is not something they were hiding the ball on 10 to 15 years ago. It's now that people are calling it out as what's going on that all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is a, a weird white supremacy. Like, no, it isn't. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with actually listening to socialists in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s writing about what they wanted to do and then realizing that, wow, they've done a pretty good job of actually infiltrating the very institutions that they promised you they were going to try to infiltrate. They bragged about it privately until everybody learned about it publicly and then suddenly tried to say, Oh, it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy yeah. theory. Yeah, but Which no, is you're really you're... funny considering how anti-Semitic a lot of these people actually are. Yeah, and you, and you called it out. Frankfurt School is yeah, yeah. Baked turkeys is hit the nail on the head right there. This one's from MT again. With the higher higher education should stop should quit stigmatizing the trades where they work with their hands. In Montana, we allow you to apprentice under a tradesman and get paid while learning. More of that, please. Yeah. Um, well, and, and that, and that's the thing, um, when, when it, when it comes to trades of that, it's, it's like, what is the capability and how can you make money while you're actually learning, learning the skill that you have? It's one of the reasons why apprenticeships are so valuable. I actually tried to expand apprenticeships in Virginia for high school students. And I was told, Oh, well, they're going to lose class time. Like, yeah, but they're going to gain education in a different environment. And it's almost like you have this people with this mentality that no, 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 no. Schooling, government schooling is education. Anything outside of that is not. That's something different. It's like, well, no, education is, again, the, the transference of knowledge between one person to another person. This is our last super chat here before we wrap up. This one's from Sir Grok again. He said, did you notice... One of your shorts were featured by Ben Shapiro. I did. I didn't. I did. Yeah, Ben, Which Sh one? ben Shapiro featured one of our shorts talking about Israel and, and Hamas, and I think really? Brett, Brett Cooper featured one as well. So yeah, I know. Always always great to have uh, Ben and Brett, who I still I, I will to the day I die. They are brother and sister. I don't care what anybody. No, says. they're the same person. <laughs> one's a, one's a male and male and female versions of a clone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't don't say that because there's a, there's a lot of guys that do not want to think of Brett Cooper as the female Brent Shapiro. <laughs> That's true. I mean, she's very pretty. There, but there was there was a lot of guys. I'm not going to say who, but they both sit at this desk, and one of them isn't me. Oh, come who on, were pretty man. upset when Brett Cooper announced that she was engaged. <laughs> <laughs> wow, just throwing throwing us under the bus. Okay, well since he he went out there and said that, I was joking with a friend about that, and then he was like, "You never even." met her and i said yeah that was supposed to be phase one <laughs> okay like i i will say this nobody's surprised and nobody thinks you're ridiculous for having a crush on brett cooper she's a pretty girl and she's very smart and funny. there you go so well thank you Tina. of course 
Well, listen, that is all the questions. I want to thank everyone for joining in. Hopefully this provided some value. If you are Gen Z or a millennial and you think that we actually provided some good feedback or some good explanations for these positions that we take, please let us know. If you think we're full of crap, you can do that as well. And for any parents out there that have kids that are Gen Z or millennials that are wondering whether or not that this is going to help you during Thanksgiving conversations or your kids return from their indoctrination centers known as the university, please follow up with us and let us know if it was helpful. And if you have any questions in the future that we can answer, Circle is a great way to ask those questions. We try to get on there. And we're not the only ones that answer questions on there. We have an excellent, very involved community with a lot of people with a lot of great background, education, and experiences. And it ends up becoming a great a great place to be able to talk about the ideas we discuss as well as developing and planning future episodes. And the last thing that I will lead with is I want to say a big thank you once again to Good Ranchers, GoodRanchers.com. That new deal. If you use promo code Nick, $15 off your order. Plus, if you lock into one of the subscriptions, you can get up to $480 of free meat. And you can now pick. It used to be you just got ground ground beef. Now you can pick. You can pick top sirloin. You can pick chicken breast. You can pick wild-caught salmon. And you can pick bacon. That's right. Bacon, the food. You can wrap every other food in to make it better. So go over there to ranch, goodranchers.com. Also consider the gift boxes. If you are wondering what to get that person that is really difficult to shop for, a, a box of meat is generally always a good idea, unless your friend's vegan, in which case, reconsider your friendship. I don't know what you... <laughs> Once again, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. Go over to Tur uh, Circle, check out the uh, community chat over there. There's link a the link in the description. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next episode.